Prince Ali, fabulous he, Ali Ababwa. Show some respect, boy, can you flat down on one knee? Hello and welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where we watch and discuss a year of film history every episode, starting from 1895, the dawn of cinema. And this week, we're talking about 1924. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Ellie. I'm a film projectionist, and joining me as always is... I'm Glenn Covell. I'm a filmmaker. And we are podcasters. Yep. <laughs> Sometimes I gotta like I gotta like finish up that I feel like it's hanging somewhere. <laughs> I think that's a good a good you know, finisher to that little intro. Speaking of, if you're listening to the podcast, you might want to know that uh, you can watch it on YouTube. Uh, you probably already know if you're listening at this point, but you can watch it on YouTube. We'll run the movies for at least the next couple years while it's copyright free. Uh, and, uh, if you're on YouTube, I, I, I would recommend generally watching it on YouTube so you can watch along, but, uh, there's a little bonus music in the, in the, uh, podcast version. That's a little, if you squeezy. wondered where that went from the YouTube versions, it's still in the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. It's still little jokes. Still little jokes. Yeah. I think that, um, uh, well, something that makes sense for this one would be send in the clowns. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it would. It would make a lot of sense. Maybe that's what that's what you're has missing. Played. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that's that's what you can do. Those are ways that you can listen to the podcast. What's up, Glenn? How's it going? It's going. You know, it's uh, a fine week. This is our first it's warm in New York today. Oh, nice. nice. Yeah. I my birthday was the day before yesterday. That's right. Happy birthday. Thank you. How was it? It was good. I ate incredibly good sushi. Oh. Uh, yeah. It was expensive, but it's worth every penny. Mm. Uh, it's a place called Sushi Den. Uh, and then on the same day, uh, I worked, we're, our lease is ending soon. And on the same day, uh, we got uh, our new place figured out. So that's nice. exciting. And it's yeah. huge. Awesome. Which is which is very, very nice. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's 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 all fun. But uh, now that we got this banter kind of stuff over, uh, let's uh, let's let's go into our actual show. But first, we're gonna give ourselves a little context for what was happening in 1924. So, Glenn, take it away with the news of the year. The news of the year, 1924. A new addition to the sports of the world. The first Winter Olympics are held high up in the French Alps. The games include skiing, skating, hockey, curling, and bobsleigh. The Computing Tabulating Recording Company is renamed to International Business Machines, or IBM. In Epcot of Colonial Horrors, the British Empire Exhibition opens with relics from all 58 countries under the Empire. Days after signing into law the Asian Exclusion Act, Calvin Coolidge signs the Indian Citizenship Act exercising racial control over who is and is not an American. 175 days and 74 stops. John Harding and Eric Nelson are the first to circumnavigate the globe in the skies. In Sequoia National Park, the last sighting occurs of the now-extinct California grizzly bear. Marcus Lowe merges Metro Pictures, Goldwyn Pictures, and Louis B. Mayer Pictures to become MGM. Box Office Bomb! After the failure of his film, Isn't Life Wonderful, D.W. Griffith is forced to leave United Artists. 
Father of the Western, Thomas H. Ince, dies mysteriously shortly after meeting with William Randolph Hearst. Rumors abound about his cause of death, including a ruckus and a gunshot aboard Hearst's ship, the Oneida. Thank you, Glenn. Some nice industry news in there. Some, some industry news. The you, you cut a couple for time. The, a couple of the, the bummers for time. <laughs> yeah, those are usually the first ones I cut for time. Because, yeah. I mean, some of them also aren't necessarily things like that I feel like immediately give a sense of time. They're just like, oh, yeah, they're awful things were also happening. Yes. Yeah, there were some awful things happening. Although I'm surprised that you didn't keep the Egan's Rats gang. Uh, <laughs> which... It would have been fun. It would have been fun to say, but yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I'm defeating the purpose of you cutting it for time. <laughs> so uh, let's get right to the feature presentation. And now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. This, I think, was the first time we've done this where it really felt like we're up against like too much stuff to cover yeah i mean it's felt like that in various ways before but like we we're not doing shorts this week uh yeah and we and we had to cut like three features that we wanted to also watch yeah yeah what a tragedy but we must move on indeed uh what do you want to start with you know, I just, the last one that I watched was Greed. So let's talk about Greed. All right. Yeah. <clears throat> I think there's a lot to say about this movie. It's yeah. it's kind of a weird, or it exists in like a weird place, I feel like. Hmm. Because of Tell me the more. way it's been preserved. Or not preserved. Uh, Yeah, what, what do you mean? There's not really any good version of this movie that exists. Mm-hmm. Because uh, it was, it was... Initially supposed to be super long is an Eric Von Storheim movie, so he was basically making a TV show. Yeah, um, yeah he should should just be a mini series, basically. And like, you know, things typically went for Eric Von Storheim. It got seriously, seriously cut down by the studio, um, and that is the only version of it that really properly exists. Yeah, originally but, meant to be ten hours long. Uh, the released version was a little over two hours long. Yeah, and then there's a sort of reconstructed version that uses uh, still frames from the cut scenes to any other titles to kind of fill in the all the missing stuff that was cut out. Um, yeah, using but, some info from the shooting script. Yeah, but it. Um, I don't know. I I was I was sort of watching this movie felt like a frustrating experience just because it's like, I'm not really watching how, what it was intended to be seen, but also I feel like even the versions of it that exist now aren't really what people watched in 1924. So it was just like, ah, it's just, I was just annoyed watching this movie, even though I think it's, it is good. It's just like, I, I feel like I'm sort of watching an approximation of what this movie was more than I'm actually watching the movie. Well, I mean, the version that still exists, the, the two ish hour one, Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that is more or less the one that was released. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, although I did my, my little, uh, crazy person edit on it to just to kind of keep the, so that most releases of the two hour version don't have the stencil colors which are one of my favorite parts of the movie. Yeah. 
Um, I guess we should say off the top, right? I watched the four hour reconstructed version and you watched. And I the watched shorter, the, the Glenn cut. <laughs> right, which you, is basically the two hour, two hour one, but with a lot of the intertitles from the four hour one, which are taken from the original script. So I made a sort of weird halfway in between one that hopefully we'll is that, just more watchable. We can put that up on the second channel. Yeah, we should. That's a good point. We'll link it in the description. Um, so Classic I know YouTube words. I know what all the the cutscenes were. Most of them seem, some of them seem pretty much like, yeah, get that out of here. We don't need it. Where some of them I think are pretty intense or striking. I mean, some of them seem like they were maybe cut because of how like lurid or uh, hmm. I say lurid on the show a lot, uh, but do. it's a good yeah. word. Yeah. Um. But yeah, there's definitely some some like, uh, just you know, messed up stuff that happens in this movie that got that got cut, and I feel like it's pro that's probably why they were cut. Hmm. Um, I mean, it's pretty intense. So so I watched your approximation of the release mm-hmm. version, and it is like pretty intense. It's uh, an intense story. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I mean, I can imagine how it would get get more extreme. Uh, but it was already quite, um, quite gripping, quite, quite, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it was, it's gripping. Yeah, it it's was, it was more... already quite edgy, I should say. Right, yeah. It's probably more gripping in a, in a shorter cut, because I feel like the, the 401 isn't even the fact that it's so long, but it's like, whenever it, whenever it switches over to a scene that's been cut and it's all done through stills. I feel like it just kills the pace. Right. And it makes it really like, it's a, it's a really interesting, like academic thing to watch, but, but not a good movie. The experience of actually watching it as a film is, is very frustrating. I thought that's a bummer. Yeah. You should watch the Glenn cut. It's, it's good. <laughs> I should. I haven't watched it all the way through. So, um, uh, but, yeah, I mean, this is, it feels very, having only watched, the only other fun Storehouse movie that I've seen is Foolish Wives. Me too. And you can definitely see the, uh, the, the authorial voice in this behind, behind both. Like, yeah, but I, I like this a lot more than Foolish Wives. Me too. Uh, I, and I, I think, think that's because that... it's based on a book that he didn't write. <laughs> right. That it's based on a not fake book that he didn't yes. not write. <laughs> Uh, this is, um, yeah, I think that the, it's, it's a lot tighter than Foolish Wives. It, it, Foolish Wives, you can, even though they're both, both these movies are about two and a half hours long, you can tell that there was a lot of stuff cut out of Foolish Wives, and this one actually Mm -hmm. feels like a coherent movie, uh, yeah, that doesn't have characters just randomly dying off screen or something. Mm -hmm. They probably learned their lesson and they were like, okay, when we're cutting down a Von Stroheim movie, we need to like make sure that he gets these scenes so that we can get like a shorter cut basically. But yeah, this, this movie, uh, it's very dramatic. Uh, I, as a quick, quick synopsis, Mm. um, it is about this guy whose last name is McTeague. People call him Mac. He, it has a cold open, this movie, which is interesting. Um, mm. It uh, starts with him working as a miner, and he uh, there's like a bird on the track, and he on the minecart track, and he stops and picks up the bird, and then kisses a, uh, the bird. A, a canary, a canary outside of the coal mine. 
Yeah. Uh, and then there's another miner who's like, what's this, a bird? Get out. <laughs> and he just like swats the bird out of his hand. And then McTeague gets so mad that he throws this guy off a bridge. And yeah. that is, that's our, um, our, our first hint into the danger of our main character. Yeah. Uh, well, it's it, showing his sort of like his, his sweetness or his innocence kind of, mm-hmm. but then also how he's this like bottled up, like, you know, volcano of, of like anger and, uh, violence potentially also. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a huckster dentist, fake dentist who comes into town mm-hmm. almost as if like a, like a dentist showman. Um, yeah. well, you know, like how dentists <laughs> used to be in the early 1900s. Uh, and, and his mother, uh, says like, that's a, that's our ticket to wealth. And so she says, study under this fake dentist. Uh, and then we flash forward to McTeague, uh, use at his dentist practice his unlicensed but very official-looking dentist practice in San Francisco years mm-hmm. later. Uh, and thus begins a love triangle. Gotta have one of those. You gotta, it's a silent movie. You gotta have a love triangle. <laughs> Legally required. This, this movie um, reminded me a lot of D.W. Griffith in terms of its, um, I don't know, edginess. Uh, yeah. And, like, it's an edgy love triangle movie. That's like trying to be really gritty, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's there's domestic abuse, Whoa, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, sure. and it makes sense because he like you know basically came up under Griffith mm-hmm. uh, von Stroheim. Uh, I think that this is handled a bit better. And even though there's a kind of central visual metaphor in this movie of birds and mm-hmm. cats. Uh, and cats wanting to attack the birds, and birds wanting to get out of cages. Uh, I think that it's a it's a little clunky, but it's it works. It's well done. I think I think yeah, it um, it definitely feels clunky now. But I think for when this was made, I think a lot of the kind of like visual metaphor stuff was yeah fairly like forward thinking. For sure. And honestly, like we, you know, in movies today, we don't even do visual metaphors like that. You know, like there there are scenes where. Um, so the, t- the McTeague and the woman in the love triangle are the two birds mm-hmm. in this metaphor. Is... Oh, uh, Trina, Trina. Um, and then the other guy in the love triangle, uh, is a cat who is attacking the birds in the cage. Yeah. Uh, and so they'll have like arguments and then it'll just flash to birds in a cage and a cat like mm. looking at them uh, just like back and forth like making this kind of visual connection which is another like Griffithy thing is it's like let's juxtapose these two things you know some of them are pretty obvious of just like so McTeague and Trina get married and then it's like they put the birds into a cage and it's like oh they're caged birds now like you know there's things like that where it's like it's pretty it's not the most complex visual metaphor but I at least appreciated kind of the effort of yeah, like yeah <laughs> to do something i was like i was like this is great like a, a high a, you know a high school student could get this you know <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah like it's it's very obviously uh the case the 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 other man is the woman is trina's cousin they are to be wed and uh then mcteague is like he's much older um but he's like I've never talked to a woman before, and I think I'm in love with your cousin. Can you call off your marriage? 
<laughs> and he's like, you know what? We're such good buddies that I'll do it. Yeah. He's uh, like, oh, shucks. Why not? <laughs> Um, I believe one of his lines is he says, ah, rats, I guess you're in love. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least that, I mean, that's how, uh, isn't it? Mark, right? Is the, uh, the friend. Oh yeah, I think so. Uh, Or Marcus. They refer to him as Mark in a lot of the intertitles. He, he sort of acts like he's cool with it and he is not cool with it. Not (laughs) one bit. He is very (laughs) resentful. Uh, yeah, and then, uh, so, the uh, uh, McTeague, or Mac, uh, starts falling in love with Trina as she is doing this, like, extended two-week-long dental procedure with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're just chatting while he's in the dental chair, and he's like, oh my god, a woman. And then uh, he puts her under for the first time, mm. and then he kisses her. Not, while- not good dentist... Uh- uh decorum later in the movie he uh gets his dentist license removed and there are many reasons why he should, <laughs> he should get his dentist license revoked but uh that that's definitely one of them uh yeah and i was like i was like a little freaked out for a second i was like is this movie real is this movie gonna like treat that as like a romantic cute thing you know mm. i was like a i don't think afraid it does. that was gonna happen yeah. it, it definitely does not no um Trina seems almost kind of like strong armed into the entire marriage. And yeah, like the second that it happens, seem, she regrets it. Yeah. She does not seem enthused about it really at any point. Um, but there's like, she's like getting pressure from her family. And then McTeague is also just this like huge dude who is like very pushy about it. Um, and it's like, they have, they established like they get along. Okay. But it's like, you get the sense McTeague doesn't really, he, it's like, this is the only woman that he's ever talked to. Um, and Trina is kind of like too shy almost to even say anything, uh, in, in, uh, in response to that. So, um, so they get married. The, uh, thing during the marriage scene, which I, another bit of visual metaphor that I quite liked is there is a funeral happening outside the window <laughs> while yeah. they're getting married in the, um, uh, this isn't, you know, canonical to the movie or whatever, but in the, the DVD that I, I sourced the audio from, uh, they were, it started, it was like the wedding music, right. During the mm-hmm. wedding. And then when the funeral starts happening in the background, you see here, the, like the funeral dirge, and then the music mixes together between the two of Ooh, them. So that's cool. that pretty good. Yeah. yeah. And then right around the same time that they get married, Trina also wins the lottery. She yes. wins $5,000, which I mean, in, in 1900s money, I mean, now check a change in 1900s money that it's like, a lot of money. A chunk of change. Yeah. Several chunks, even. Um, they move in together. They're sort of trying to make married life work. A lot of kind of stuff gradually happens over the course of their marriage that makes right. uh, McTeague become less of, a, less of a pushy teddy bear and more outwardly threatening. Uh, yeah. And a lot of it revolves around the five thousand dollars uh that trina has um decided that they will just like keep safe like and they'll just work 
and have the five thousand dollars as a backup for uh for life stuff Mm. um and he's always trying to get into the five thousand dollars and and she's keeps pushing him back yeah there is a bit right before so there's sort of a, a time jump right after the marriage that we jump ahead to like years later into their yeah. lives um right before that um there is a scene i just want to point out because i thought it was really really effective use of intertitles and that a lot of the i mean all the dialogue is intertitles but it's generally if you see people talking on screen there will be an intertitle saying what they say and there's, there's a, bit a lot right of dialogue at, yeah, right. There's a bit right after the marriage where um, Trina has this sort of very kind of frightened, pleading conversation with her mother. Sort of, but we the, it never goes to an intertitle. We never actually, you know, hear in quotes what she's saying to her mother. We just, but we can get the sense just through the performance that she's she doesn't have the the best vibes about this marriage going <laughs> forward. Um, right. And I thought that was just a really, it felt very deliberate and it was like, it made that scene much sort of more, much kind of scarier just because mm-hmm. of like, if there had been some, you know, flowery old timey intertitle of like, but mother, I'm so frightened about McTeague. It it wouldn't have the same effect of just the actors conversing and we see their eyes and their expressions. And that's it's like the really Jaws shark. Exactly. Is it? <laughs> uh... <laughs> <laughs> because and because then, you you're what you're imagining is worse than it could ever be. Right, 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 right. Um and then I kinda that scene ends um on this nice sort of shot of uh Trina in her wedding dress looking kind of ghostly and McTeague closes a curtain uh covering the camera. Um Right. There's an intermission there, I believe, right? There is, although that uh I think on both versions of it that I like on both like released versions, it skips over that, but there's like a couple frames where it says intermission. Hmm. It like starts to fade in and then cuts and just the next scene happens. I'm like, Oh, so there's that's supposed to be a, an act break, like an intermission oh, wow. right there. Huh. So on mine, I put the intermission thing back in. Um, Cause I'm like, ah. clearly that was the intent. <laughs> then we flash forward three years ahead. Um, and uh yeah trina is is not wanting to spend any of her her winnings and uh mcteague keeps being like let's buy a house let's do this let's do let's let's spend it um it's burning a hole in my pocket yeah and that's sort of uh for this whole kind of like second act of the movie that sort of the main conflict is sort of trina being sort of withholding with her money um and sort of we see a, a kind of descent of McTeague from being this sort of more sort of upstanding sort of shy guy into a more angry demanding uh abusive drunkard basically yeah and an- another thing that kind of factored into the the love triangle angle of the movie mm-hmm. is that Marcus uh realized that like wait a second i called off my marriage with my cousin and then uh months later just a couple months later she wins five thousand dollars like that five thousand dollars should be mine you don't deserve it he feels Uh, entitled to that even though 
it was never his like yeah <laughs> um we also uh, never get the sense that i feel like trina wanted to marry marcus either yeah uh, yeah i mean this was um i <laughs> in my in my notes i wrote a love triangle where they're both scumbags yeah U- usually usually it's like one good guy and one bad guy yeah. but they're but this is a whoever wins we lose situation um yeah i whoever wins trina loses yes yeah i um have not seen alien versus predator but i <laughs> reference that tagline often <laughs> i mean it's a very good tagline tagline yeah. is is really much better than the film so after a while, Marcus kind of exits the picture because um, he kind of, I guess, realizes that he's been defeated, basically. Um, he he kind of pettily tries to get money out of uh, Mac. And at one point, they even start like a bar brawl. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, eventually he just realizes like, you know what? I'm just going to go. Like, yeah. there's, there's nothing good for me here. I'm going to go be a cowboy. Uh, As you and do. then and then a couple weeks later uh mac gets a, a letter that says hey by the way we found out that uh we're the dentist organization we found out that you're not a real dentist and you have a <laughs> dentist practice stop mm. <laughs> um, and and then that's where everything like really goes downhill and right. they uh they become poor they have yeah. to get these kind of rough jobs and Mac gets into drinking and being more violent and mm-hmm. everything just gets bad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It gets real bad uh, to the point where um, what's like the first real, real bad thing to happen. I mean, yeah, I guess it, it is sort of just like it's, it's getting, they're getting, they're bickering more and more sort of Trina is becoming more and more, withholding of of she's she has kept on the five thousand dollars this whole time they've moved into like this shack mac isn't working he's just this layabout he keeps asking for her for money for booze and eventually mac just he goes fishing one day and doesn't come back um and then trina gets a job at a school uh washing the floors she finally withdraws her five thousand dollars from the bank and puts it in her bed so she can lie in it. Just it's all in gold coins. Matt comes back to to get the money from her, and she still refuses. And he ends up uh, in a very like well shot and upsetting scene. Yeah, ends up uh, murdering her. Kind of chases her into a room, and you can tell that there's like violence happening, but doesn't really show any of it. There's some stuff that gets cut out here. <laughs> I guess there's there was so there was a cut scene. I want to wait till the end to describe what most of the scenes that were cut out were. But there's the scene that it takes place at night. He shows up at school at night, um, and there's this really moody lighting. It happens on Christmas Eve, so there's like Christmas decorations, which is a really cool detail. Mac kills her and takes the money. Uh, there is a scene that was cut that is only in stills. That the next morning the children go to the school and find. Trina's like bloody corpse on the floor. Oh, and it it does seem like it's like yeah, I see why they cut this out in the twenties. Like this is a very, uh, very macabre scene. There's a lot of blood in this movie in general, much more so than I think I associate with movies of this era. Like, 
Yeah, particularly in the stencil colors. Um, mm, yeah. There, a- after he kills her, um, there begins this... Uh, Marcus uh, finds it, like, sees his face on a wanted poster, and there begins this kind of westerny sequence where yeah. they're like chasing after Mac on like through Death Valley, mm-hmm. uh, and there he gets a posse. Uh, they end like he ends up just going on after him by himself. Uh, yeah, through, the, the, like, the posse the turns desert. around. They're like, We're not, "We can't keep going through Death Valley. Like this is this is madness." Uh. And eventually, after tracking him for a while, he he catches up with Mac. Uh, they uh, there is some some kind of gun pointing, and eventually, the mule that's holding the five thousand uh, dollars runs away. So they shoot the mule. Uh, the the coins spill out. The last of the water that's remaining in there and they're in the middle of the desert spills out onto the ground well when and they shoot the mule the bullet goes through the canteen also and spills all the water so yes. it's like the gunshot also gets rid of their water supply all because the the mule dies and all the coins spill out there are just coins with like blood blood all on them blood uh, money which is like very like here's yeah. the theme everybody again, you know? not not the most subtle visual metaphor but you know again like <laughs> no, it's it, good it's, it's, it's a good. cliche because it works you know they have a bad time in the desert yes they do uh they fight over the money mac uh beats marcus to death as he tends to do to people but during the fight, he finds out he is he's been handcuffed to him. Oh, that was a great reveal! Incredible, that, like it was so good in that movie. It's like, um, <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh my god, like he he killed him, and then he just looks down and he's mm-hmm. like handcuffed to a dead body in the middle of a yeah. desert with no water. And then that's great. <laughs> the la- the last thing that he does before he presumably, uh, you know starves to death or dehydrates is uh he frees the canary that he's kept in his cage this whole time and the canary flies free like in blade runner it's great <laughs> i think we should talk about the stencil colors for a sec because that was one of my favorite things about this movie sure so typically when we've seen stencil colors and things it's like really bright uh sort of not super realistic coloration of things i'm thinking of like the Segunda du Chimon films with like a pink ghost and a green giant and like a, a purple castle and like they're really bright, colorful things. I saw the later Pathé color looked pretty naturalistic, but yeah, um, yeah, a lot of the early stencil color definitely. But but they're they're generally they're used just to sort of brighten up the image and just give it yeah. some visual flair. Whereas mm-hmm. this only two colors are ever used: red for blood and gold for gold. Yes. Um, and so there's a bunch of so like the when the dentist comes into town at the very beginning, he's got this this big gold tooth on his wagon, and that is actually gold. It's very Django. Uh, it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a bit when when Trina reveals her like the dental work that she's gotten done. She like pulls her her lip back, and you see the gold teeth. Sort of everything else is in black and white, and there's just this gold like in the center of the frame. There are a couple sort of very kind of surreal like cutaways to like hands rubbing gold coins kind of these like weird like malnourished you know 
spooky hands. Some metaphor hands. Some metaphor hands, uh, you know, kind of like picking up gold coins and stuff. Um, and it's, you know, just the coins are are gold. You know, everything else is black and white. And just the 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 selectiveness of when the stencil color is used, I think, is really um, really effective and really cool. Like it reminds me of later movies uh, from like the '90s or later that are in black and white but have these sounds like, like Spielberg's cribbing a little bit from uh, the uh, you know maybe era. maybe. <laughs> um, but yeah, it is that like Schindler's List or our uh, Sin City thing where it's like black and white with like very selective color in it. Yeah, um, it's well done. And yeah, I hadn't seen that with stencil colors like this before. I know uh, next year, I believe. Um, Battleship Potemkin uses some like like one, if I remember correctly, one very specific use of red. Oh, uh, interesting. In that movie. I think yeah. I've only ever seen black and white versions of it. So, hmm. uh, we'll find out. Indeed. Um, so the the main things that were cut out of of this movie to make it shorter was originally there were a couple of pretty significant subplots involving the other people who lived like in the apartment building as uh as mcteague there was one involving these two uh these two old people a man and woman who like had uh apartments next to each other and that they found out that it used to be one apartment that had been like sectioned off with a wall Hmm. and so because that was like a more recent wall that was put in, they could hear everything the other person did. And so they became like really accustomed to like their comings and goings and like knew exactly where like they put their hat and like where they cooked dinner. And like, they like got to know each other just through proximity of like living next to this thin wall that separated their two apartments. Um, and they end up falling in love and, uh, uh, removing the wall to make their apartment one. Huh? And they kind of, like, it, they do interact with the other characters, but it's sort of, like, it will occasionally kind of, like, cut away to scenes of them. There's a lot more scenes with, like, Trina's family um, throughout the whole thing. So, Marcus ends up being, if you watch the longer one, Marcus is the reason why Trina needed dental work in, to begin with, because she he was, like, pushing her on a swing, and it broke, and she fell and, like, knocked her teeth out. Oh, wow. And then and it, with the other like big subplot is there's also a, these two, uh, there's another, another couple there's like, right. There's that like sweet romantic story of the couple who falls in love. And then there's this other couple. There's like this junk collector guy and there's uh, a woman named Maria and Maria is the person who, who sells the lottery ticket to Trina. Hmm. Um, and they're both sort oh, yeah. of like down in the luck uh you know impoverished don't have a lot maria keeps saying how she came from great wealth like her family used to have all this money but it was lost somehow and kind of just through like convenience maria and and uh zirkow is the junk collector end up getting married and have have a child that's described like the baby from a racer head it's described as a wretched sickly <laughs> child that dies after a few weeks oh my god <laughs> um it it just i you know similarly to everything else that happens in the movie it just gets things get worse and worse and worse Zirkov thinks that maria is like hiding money from him he eventually uh murders her and then 
drowns in the bay um, holding a bunch of rusty dishes because he was under the impression that she had buried all these gold dishes somewhere. Um, and so I guess he like dug up a bunch of rusty dishes thinking that that was what they were and jumped into the bay and drowned. Uh, Trina then has a nightmare about Maria, which even in stills is like really freaky and scary because Maria was killed by having her throat cut. And so she shows up with this like scar across her throat. Um, and she's like chasing after Trina in the dream. Um, another like really sort of like upsetting intense thing that gets cut out is, uh, there's a bit where Mac and, and Trina are fighting and Mac uh, bites her fingers, which that is in the shorter cut. But then uh, later on, there's a cut scene where uh, her fingers get infected and she has to get them amputated. Oh, and it's wow. like, I think there might, it's, it's hard to tell with the stills because it's like they were added in later and they were brought back. But it's like, at least in the stills, in the reconstructed version of it. Uh, there's possibly some sensible coloring of like her sort of like discolored, like purple infected fingers. And it's like, oh. and then there's, there's a bunch more of sort of like in the third act of like uh, McTeague sort of escape into death Valley and like why he's going to death Valley in the first place. And sort of like, it's not as much of a kind of jump to just, Oh, he's on the run. Mm-hmm. Um, like he, he goes back to his, his old mining town um, and like tries to get a job there again and it doesn't work out and he has to escape and there's a bunch of other stuff but uh yeah quite the, quite the picture i appreciate how movies of this time compared to movies now are like less afraid to have uh like the main character be like a bad guy you know mm. yeah um like there are other things that kind of like i don't know people of anti-heroes now but like this is just like a guy who sucks. And, yeah, McTeague is uh, he not an anti-hero. He's just, he's just an awful, awful dude. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which I think is interesting. You know, we saw that in um, Phantom Carriage a bit too. Mm-hmm. Even though it was a bit of a Scroogey kind of situation. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I like I like how you know the the kind of um, formulaic kind of yeah. hero villain plot stuff is not like fully established mm-hmm. in a way and so we can get some more interesting like character studies yeah uh maybe more adult character studies um the the version of the i watched the the four-hour cut online so it it had a, a sort of unauthorized score that was mostly taken from there will be blood which seems like an appropriate <laughs> an appropriate uh score to pull from one because it's just a good score but it also it did remind me of that movie a bit just in terms of like it's sort of like messed up American dream kind of plot. Um, and also it's sort of like, yeah, it's, it's following a main character who is just bad, like not a good guy. Right. And they both have Paul F. Tompkins in them. Uh, correct. Uh, <laughs> do you have anything else on greed? Um, it's a, a, a pretty quick, like behind the scenes stuff. Um, it was, being made at it was made by goldwyn pictures sort of during like before and during the merger into mgm um it was shot on location in death valley in the summer and a bunch of crew did have to get sent back to la because of heat exhaustion (laughs) 
and the the sort of original the sort of first cut of it was uh only screened once for about 12 people and it was as far as i can tell it's there's this information is a little sketchy but it was 42 reels which yeah is like between eight and ten hours um and uh i think von stroheim was able to cut it down to around 24 reels at which point he refused to cut any more out of it um he there's a quote i found from him where it said it would leave gaps that would that could only be bridged through titles when you do such thing you have illustrated subtitles instead of a motion picture Hmm. um fair enough and uh and then it was you know they got other editors to come in and you know cut more out of it and von stroheim was very upset and kind of disowned the theatrical version of it i mean we've only seen really cut down mangled versions of von stroheim movies but he does seem yeah. like a guy who uses a lot of intertitles he does seem like uh, a guy who uses a lot of intertitles he also seems like a guy that maybe could use some edits like yeah. i think both these movies feel like too much was cut out of them but at the same time it feels like there there could be a happy medium that you know maybe make like yeah like a three and a half hour movie that functions <laughs> yeah i think that i think it works as a short version um i do too yeah agreed was a very like very like real world drama movie very mm. very human level very uh uh muted it's it, it's dramatic but it's like real stuff it's muted yeah. it's uh complex acting uh there's another movie that has people who have neck scars um that has some pretty extreme acting dramatic acting in it uh and that is the hands of orlack mm. yeah a movie i was uh, very excited to see and i i, I kind of was let down by a little bit yeah me too um, I, I don't think this was as good as I hoped it would be, but this is Robert Vina, uh, who did Caligari, mm-hmm. uh, teaming back up again with um, Conrad Veidt. Conrad Veidt, who played the somnambulist, and he somnambulates a little bit more in this movie he too. Does, yeah, he does a lot of stuff in this movie. Um, I do this... like Conrad Veidt in this movie, even if he is going real big. <laughs> yeah, I was I was watching this movie. And at the beginning, when I was when I was seeing all of this like like big acting from mm. Conrad Veidt, I was like, he is doing some good stuff with his face. He is like really selling this drama. And then he kept just like posing with yeah his hands in the air and wild gestures on his face, like and then a different pose and then a different yeah. one. And then I'm just like, okay, there's silent movie acting, and then there is this, which is like yeah. way overacting. Yeah. <laughs> This I do uh, feel like is like what people think of when they think of silent movie acting of just like yeah super exaggerated like body movement and and uh, that sort of thing. I did write down. I think Conrad Veidt's eyeballs are the real star of this movie. <laughs> um, yeah. this movie has a great premise. It's it's super pulpy and super yes. fun. Yeah, uh, the premise of this movie is uh, Paul Orlock is a a famous pianist great piano player but he gets in a crane train crash the train crash is done super well great it lasts a little too long but it is pretty great Uh, there's some cool like text on screen in this part where people are like 
there's been a, a crash in whatever the town is. And it's, instead of being done in internetals, it's done in sort of animated text on screen, which is yeah. something Robert Vina did a little bit in Caligari also, which I like. I'm a fan of that. Right. Um, but so then, uh, you know, they find uh, Orlock and his hands. They say his, the hands, the hands, they're ruined. <laughs> his beautiful piano playing hands. And his his wife is like, uh, like, they're, they're, they're operating on him. And it's like, it's not worth saving his life unless you can save his hands. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, and the doctor's like, hmm, interesting. Methinks I have an idea. And he's looking out the window at this a serial killer who's who's being executed, like, at the same time. Um, and he kind of looks out the window and is like, hmm, a pair of hands, maybe. Um, and so then Orlok wakes up and is, you know, he's sort of convalescing. He's getting better. And uh, they, were, you know, reveal that his, his hands have been uh, transplanted from this... Uh, this murderer yeah and uh well he gets it he he finds out it because someone leaves a note like in his bed saying like hey you have murder hands now (laughs) and you know he tries to play the he can't play the piano anymore um but he keeps sort of like uh you know he like finds a knife in his house he's sort of haunted by the knowledge that he has murder hands and more and more thinks that he's he's going insane and that the the hands might be sort of like taking control of him and making him commit murders his father who hates him ends up being murdered um and there's like oh the the killer vasur his fingerprints were on the knife on at the scene and he's like no these hands these hands they've they've done a murder and then we find out that uh he did have the murderer's hands the whole time, but all of the actual murder stuff and him finding the knife and all the sort of like ghostly apparitions that he's been seeing are all because of this con artist who knew the killer and is basically just trying to extort money from him. It's very Scooby-Doo. It kind of is. Yeah. It's, it's Scooby-Doo mixed with the kind of like similar gimmicky twist of Caligari, Mm -hmm. uh, which maybe is just a, a Vina thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think this movie is a lot less visually inventive than Caligari. It's not nearly Certainly. as, yeah. it's not nearly as impressionistic. This is placed in the German expressionism camp. And I, you know, with the lighting and some of the set yeah. design, I can see it, but like, I, the I set th- design especially is a, a little impressionistic, but not super crazy. I think like, as far as expressionism goes, like, you know, crazy set design it's like caligari all the way up here then like yeah. four notches down is the golem mm-hmm. and then like 10 notches below is everything else yeah i didn't mind the sort of like con artist twist that it's like he actually hasn't been murdering anyone with his murder hands yeah but i i wish that the reveal had gone even further and been like oh he didn't actually he's had his own hands this whole time and all of his sort of weird that I can't control my hands are doing is all in his head, which I guess it is, but it's like, um, cause it, you find out he also had a hand, head injury. I wish it, they'd push it even further where it's like, he never even had a hand transplant. 
And yeah, you just went over, we, we, we spent a very long time going over Greed, which is uh, about 40 minutes longer than this. But you just yeah. went over the entire movie. And this movie is an hour and 50 minutes. And uh, it eats through a lot of that time with just, <laughs> with just Conrad Veidt just looking at his hands, mu- mugging. Yeah, <laughs> which I mean, is is good. It's good. St- but it is there's a there's a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's there's some cool stuff with the the con artist who's pretending to be the murderer and his sort of like cloak. He uh, so he's pretending to be the the murderer who had his hands amputated. So he's got these like fake prosthetic hands, um, which turn out to just be like gloves that he made. But I I like that. That was like a cool thing. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of cool spooky stuff in this movie. Him encountering like this apparition of the murderer is very cool. I don't want to be too down on this movie because I think yeah. it's like it's neat. It's just too long, uh, and uh, it, uh, it 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 has like a lot of. I think even though the set design is not necessarily full Caligari, uh, I think there's still some like really nice compositions in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's cool to look at, you know. Yeah. This this can go. This can definitely go on that honorary list of like silent movies to put on in the background during a party. You Very know? true. Very true. We should make a playlist of those. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is also worth I think noting that the plot of this movie, I think, directly. Uh, influenced or inspired uh, Doctor Strange's origin, and also the uh, the Fry gets his hand swapped with the robot devil episode of Futurama. Um, this movie was also remade uh, in the 30s with Peter Lorre mm, uh, in a sound I, version. I gotta see that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, and yeah, I think it's also like a lot shorter, so yeah, <laughs> that'll yeah. be good. There's also that Simpsons episode where Homer gets the hair transplant. And that uh, seeps yeah. into his brain. This has got to all be that, yeah. It, yeah I mean, it's sure. a cool idea. It's a fun idea. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not sure. I think I like the idea that it's a twist, but I also like an idea that it's not a twist. And that, like, yeah. literally just your hands can make you kill people mm-hmm. if you have killer hands. I think yeah. that's fun, uh, it even it's if it doesn't fun. make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do love it. Another movie with a lot of... Surreal, surreal, surreality, uh huh, and some some wild stuff. Mm-hmm. Is Thief of Baghdad? Oh, oh yeah, oh <laughs> Thief of Baghdad. Uh, what a picture! This movie slaps so hard. <laughs> oh yes, it does. This movie <laughs> rules. This movie is so goddamn fun. Um, if I if I had to show somebody like a a non like slapstick silent movie and just go like mm-hmm. watch this you're gonna have fun yeah Thief of Baghdad like no yeah. question this movie is so good <laughs> yeah uh, so this is uh, a Douglas Fairbanks joint I feel like he didn't direct it but it, it he feels like kind of the main auteur of it yeah much like Mark of Zorro. Um, he did a couple other, Mark of Zorro was his first sort of like swashbuckling movie. He did a couple in the years between, he did like a Robin Hood, uh, Don Juan or whatever, Don Q, and then Thief of Baghdad, which is probably the most famous one. I don't know, Mark of Zorro is pretty famous too. Yeah, probably Mark of um, Zorro. But I, I'd heard of this movie for sure, never seen it. Douglas Burbanks plays a sort of, uh, Aladdin type, I guess. Uh, it's, he, it's he a... likes showing off his abs. <laughs> 
I don't think he wears a shirt at any point in this movie. He briefly does when he's pretending to be the prince, but that's, oh, that's I think right. the only yeah. part. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like um I I hopped into the middle of the movie for a second before I started it and uh my partner looked at it and was like I didn't know that people from this long ago were that cut, you know. <laughs> me weirdly enough, me neither. <laughs> because yeah, Douglas Fairbanks basically never wears a shirt in this movie and it's like, yeah, good good abs. He's showing off the goods. I mean, which is interesting because like uh I th- I I was like he's like a little chubby in Mark yeah. of Zorro. Yeah. And then like he's just like ripped he's he's in full heartthrob mode in this movie for sure yeah yeah (laughs) um with his 20s mustache it is i think you know come out right at this top and say it douglas fairbanks not the most accurate depiction of a middle eastern person (laughs) (laughs) i think this movie definitely has a uh you have to watch it in the context of 1924 this is not trying to be a remotely accurate depiction of uh you know ancient uh iraq this movie yeah. de- deals in some pretty heavy duty cultural uh uh what's what's the word i'm thinking of appropriation yes there we go cultural appropriation yeah. all over this movie i guess i mean i don't want to i don't want to make excuses for this but like we were doing this up until like 25 years ago i know there know? was a movie from what 2008 called prince of persia starring jake <laughs> gyllenhaal <laughs> yeah yeah so it's yeah. like it's I think i'm not that, saying you know it's not not saying that that's better now but yeah. yeah we can we can look at this stuff critically but like honestly like i don't know like i think that like there's nothing like hateful about this movie no like again like you know there, there are issues with it in and of itself but like this is not like watching birth of a nation with the blackface in it no. you know this is and just like I, I'm a white guy who is playing uh, Aladdin. Yeah. With, so <laughs> I, t- I, I I wear bronzer, you know? <laughs> I only bring it up because I think it's my only negative thing I can say about this movie. Fair Pretty enough. Pretty much everything yes. else about it. I'm just like, nope, rules. Awesome. Great. <laughs> the best. Um, yeah, we'll get, we'll get that out of the way. Uh, right off the bat, there is a lot of... This isn't necessarily a knock against the movie, but there's a lot of like people saying thou in this movie. Much like in Toll of the Sea. And I'm like, no Iraqi person has ever said thou. <laughs> There's a lot of, yeah, like, faux-biblical speak in this movie. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's like, we... So we're introduced to Douglas Fairbanks as... Uh, what's the character's name? Does he have a name? I just call him Doug in my head. <laughs> uh, he does have a name, yes. Uh, oh, uh, Ahmed. Oh, there you go. So Ahmed is a, uh, like I said, an Aladdin type. He's he's a street rat. He's a he's, he's a he's, he's literally a, Aladdin. <laughs> he's he's a thief. He's stealing bread. He's using a pineapple a pineapple for a grappling hook. He's eating. He's oh eating, my god. <laughs> he's eating rice off of a balcony like it's an apple pie. Um. See, this is how much amazing stuff happens in this movie. That like you can just say he uses a pineapple as a grappling hook and then just move right on by, right, right along. He hides in a bunch of big pots. His sort of mantra at the beginning is, uh, "What I want, I take." Um, yeah. and he's, he's sort the of, thief of Baghdad. Yeah, the titular thief, and he he shows up to a uh, uh, a mosque, and uh, they're like, "Hey, you know, maybe try." Give religion a chance. And he's like, no, ha 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 ha. I steal. That's what I do. And he laughs in their face and he runs away. 
I will say, like, you know, this all this, like, the stealing, like, even, like, all the scenes where he's, like, lifting stuff off of people, it's all, like, so fun and, like, and, like, funny. Uh, yeah. And, like, I think... Charming. That this, yeah, this movie, um, like, this, this movie shares what I thought was really great about Mark of Zorro, which is that, like, somehow, like, Douglas Fairbanks just, like like leaps off the screen as the most like affable charming person Mm -hmm. in the universe and you cannot like help but just like have a dumb grin anytime (laughs) he's on fate on the screen his dumb grin is infectious yes it just yeah there is definitely uh yeah just a a real sense of joy that he brings to his characters that is is hard to not get swept up in and so we find out that uh there's there's a princess jasmine i don't think that's actually her name but yeah basically (laughs) and uh there's all these suitors right who are coming to try to try to marry her um and we we find out that there is uh the 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 mongol prince has his eyes set on baghdad he wants to take over the city Mm -hmm. and so he's one of the suitors coming in um and then uh so there's this parade of of suitors that comes into the palace right and the princess is like gross 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 to each of them um (laughs) and then uh douglas fairbanks disguises himself as a prince so he can come in also um and he's like hello one one of these suitors has uh has has good abs yeah (laughs) i guess the other negative thing you can say about this movie is that like he comes in with the intention to like chloroform and kidnapped the princess uh which is not like not like a, a not nice a great thing look. to do no. yeah no it's uh not. and then he goes like oh no i love her i can't i can't drug her and take her away you yeah. know like immediately he's like this is a terrible idea like she's actually super nice like i'm not gonna <laughs> i'm not gonna kidnap her um but yeah it is like the whole like you know aladdin prince ali the, no, uh, it is. It is segment. literally the 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 Prince Ali musical number from Aladdin happens in this movie, minus the song. This, so I don't know enough about the non-Aladdin parts of um, Thousand and One Nights, mm-hmm. uh, Arabian Nights, um, to know like if the back half of the movie is also like inspired by that stuff. Uh, it's definitely like an Arabian Nights pastiche. Yeah. Uh, like it is taking the Aladdin story and just like remixing it just a little mm-hmm. bit, and it, whether or not the back half of the movie has stuff from from it or not, it's like like appending more onto it afterward. Yeah. So the first half is this like very swashbuckly, Fairbanksy Aladdin pastiche. The second half of the movie is like a um a a. a, a proto like Harryhausen adventure movie uh by way of like a like more oh. narratively souped up Georges Melies uh it's and so good. <laughs> and so also good. like a little bit of like Princess Kaguya like like put in there yeah too. it's like a treasure hunt it's also like a mo- we'll we'll get to it I mean yeah <laughs> I, it's worth mentioning one of the princess's handmaidens is played by anime wong yes and she's like a double agent she's working for the mongolian prince there are three princes right there's the mongolian prince 
the like real evil one. There is the uh, Prince of the Andes, and the the, me- the medium evil one. Yeah, <laughs> and then and then there's the one that uh, she's just like, oh, he's fat. Yeah, that one is the Prince of Persia. Prince of Persia, correct. Uh, so there's there's Anime Wong as the handmaiden has sort of set up this this ruse, right, where she's told the princess this prophecy that whatever suitor touches the rose tree in the garden is the one that she will marry. And so she's like, hey, Mongolian prince, make sure you touch the rose tree in the garden. Um, but then before he can do that, uh, a bee flies out and he's like swatting <laughs> away the bee and the bee flies over to Douglas Fairbanks's horse and the horse kicks him off and he flies into the tree and the princess is like, oh, I guess I'm going to marry fate. him. Yeah. Incredible. Uh, right. They have a one of the like I guess security measures for the palace is uh, they have this big ape played by an actual chimpanzee. Um, and at one point they say a fling. <laughs> so yeah, uh, uh, Douglas Fairbanks is, is uh, he like professes his love to the princess, but he gets caught in his, you know, in his con and uh, chased, you know, they catch him uh, and they're going to put him into the, like the flogging, a pit and they say fling him to the ape which is a great just a great uh phrase when you capture someone <laughs> uh but the princess smuggles him out through the secret panel to the streets great that there's a secret panel and so she's trying to delay the marriage she's like hey i don't want to get married yet all the suitors have to go off for a week and seek out treasure to bring back to me and i'll, I'll pick whichever one brings back the coolest treasure yeah. And so that's that's when like the kind of second half of the movie kicks in. And so she, she is doing this like specifically like I, I don't know if they knew about this like legend when they were or if this is just a thing outside mm-hmm. of that. But like it is doing this like Princess Kaguya thing of like I've got these suitors but I don't want them. So I'm going to send them on ridiculous quests mm-hmm. uh, to get them out of my face basically. Yeah. Um, so all four princes, including the fake prince of Baghdad, thief of Baghdad, um, go off to their different tre- on their different treasure hunts, and all these treasure hunts are the coolest and the best. And I uh... um, <laughs> so uh, the first one is well, so the the Douglas Fairbanks has like a couple different things he has to get through. He has to go through the Valley of Fire. Great. Valley of Monsters. He fights an alligator dragon. Played by an alligator in like a Halloween mask. <laughs> it's so good. Um, I um I like you you watched this one before I did, and when that scene happened, I was like, oh, this is why Glenn likes it so much. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, I would have liked it anyway, but yeah, that that pushes it over the edge. Um so Valley of Monsters, he like sword fights this alligator dragon thing. And there's great, like it's, it's, it's just, so cool. It's a cool, it's a great twenties effect of like either multiple exposure, or whatever, however they did it of like massive looking alligator dragon. And then Douglas Fairbanks is tiny in the frame and he's like waving a sword around. And then they cut in close to like a fake dragon belly that he gets to stick a sword into and like cut a big hole. And yeah, it does. So this movie does so much with, um, suggesting scale and suggesting yes. like effects 
like by choosing shots very carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, it it has some like close ups of like a real size like alligator creature, uh, like a human, you know, something that would be way too small to be a giant creature, but it like has it really close, so it like in context it looks really yeah. big. Then it shows like the belly zoomed in. That's a completely different thing. And then it shows it introduces the shot with him. And yeah, like a double exposure, really, really tiny on the bottom left side of the frame. And then like the dragon taking up like a huge part of the right yeah. side of the frame. Uh, so it's like establishing the space. And then like once it's establishing like the space and the scale and everything like that, then it can like do all these kind of quick cuts to different angles and it all feels mm-hmm. of a piece. Yeah. Uh, it works. It works really well. And that's not like the only great effect. There are so many good effects in this movie. We we can't list all the good effects. There's too many, or all the great like all the sets in this movie are mind-boggling. Huge sets. Like like there are effects in this movie where I was like, I don't know how they did that. Yep. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is maybe the first time that that has happened for us. Um. Yeah. I mean, just there's the sheer amount of effects and tricks and things that are happening throughout this whole thing is is crazy. Um. So after he fights the alligator dragon, he goes to the uh, the cavern of enchanted trees and talks to a tree guy, which is amazing. And um, just the coolest costume of this like tree that comes alive and it's this tree guy. He's got like yeah. long like you know branch fingers and stuff. The yeah, he's like he's like frozen like as a tree. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of like fades to him like waking up and being yeah. able to move around, but he moves around in a very Doug Jonesy way, oh, you know. So good. Uh, <laughs> guy in so a then big costume. He, get, he gets a treasure map from the from the tree guy. Uh he fights a big bat creature. Um and then he goes to uh uh what's it, the old man of the midnight sea, which is the underwater level, where he <laughs> dives down into the ocean and fights a sea spider. Yeah, again, yep. such a, an amazing creature. Just this, and it's it's funny because it's like he's swimming down to this thing. It's you know Douglas Fairbanks just acting like he's underwater, and it's slightly overcranked, so it's a little bit slow motion. Yeah, yeah. And then this really creepy spider thing just starts floating down towards him, and I'm like, no, oh, turn around. There's a spider behind yeah. you. And yeah, he sells being underwater really well. There's this like really tall shot where he's swimming down, mm-hmm. uh, and he must have been like on a wire or something like that. And so they're yeah. like, uh, what, overcranking it? Mm-hmm. And so he's moving a bit slower, pretending to swim down, down. Mm-hmm. And it's like this really wide shot. So it, and like with all these filters over it and everything, so it really looks like he's underwater. I, I kind of thought that they might have just built like a giant underwater set because right. like they they could have, you know. Um, and so he, yeah, he gets he, tempted by some sirens. While yeah, he's he, down he kills the sea spider when there's a bunch of mermaids down there, and he's like, "I could just stay here with all these mermaids, but no, I have I have a princess to go marry." Um, so then he goes off to the abode of the winged horse, where he uh, gets a a Pegasus to ride and um, a magic little uh, chest. And that's his. That's his treasure, right? It's his magic chest. Meanwhile, yeah, he can he can pull the, the he discovers that he can just kind of wish for something and then he pulls it out of the chest and it just appears. Yeah. 
Uh, Meanwhile, so that's, his, that's his great treasure. We have we have our like our getting. three villain princes, right? Our like yeah. actual villain, our two sort of like sub villain princes, and they each have a cool adventure they go on. Yeah, and it's kind of like intercutting between like mm-hmm. uh, between Ahmed and like the other princes, yeah. like doing their quests. So the Mongolian prince goes to the islands of Wak, W A K. And I saw that come up. I'm like, oh, I love this. And it's a whole <laughs> set that they built just for that, presumably, of like his boat coming in. There's an amazing reveal where we see like the um, the sail of the boat is lowered and reveals the set like behind it as the boat is kind of coming into the port. Oh, I didn't notice that. In- incredible. It's so cool. Nice. Um, and then there's like literal stuff from Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom of like a circle door that like rolls out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes and he finds uh, a magic uh, a magic apple that can uh, bring people back from the dead or like heal heal someone even if they've died. And he tests yeah. this by using a snake staff, a staff with a living snake in it, to bite a guy at just the a port, random guy, yeah, <laughs> um, to kill him. And then he uses the thing to bring him back just to prove that it works. And he's like, "This is a great a great treasure." This the 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 Mongol prince, by the way, like he. Uh, you know, she sends them all out. They're all like earnestly trying to get the best, the best gift, the most rare treasure that they can. But the right. the Mongol prince is also like, I got a backup plan here. Like, uh, I'm gonna send many, many people into the city, pretending to be porters, but they're actually soldiers, and we're going to prepare to take over the city because I want the city no matter what. He uh, also is having people spy on the other villain princes to see what treasures they're getting. <laughs> Looking over their shoulders, like, what, what do you got? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, so the Prince of Persia just buys a flying carpet, like, at a market. Um, and the Prince of the uh, Indies has a guy climb a giant statue and steal a crystal ball from the eye. And the guy falls and dies, but then the prince is like, cool, it's mine now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that's why I think he earns, like, secondary villain. Because, like, you know, the the Prince right. of Persia didn't really do anything wrong. Like, the, this guy yeah. is, like, a uh, piece of shit. <laughs> exactly. And it's like, it's, like, a huge statue. This is another thing yeah. where they're really playing with scale and, like, selling this giant thing. Like, they have this probably, like, a miniature that is, like, this huge maybe Vishnu or something like that. It's, like, a multi-armed mm-hmm. uh, god statue. And then they, like, cut in on him, like, climbing up some, like, uh, huge parts of it mm-hmm. that are, like, zoomed in. And so you're you're getting the sense of him, like, climbing up this giant thing. It yeah. works so well. Reminded me a lot of Uncharted 2. I was like, this is literally yeah. a thing that happens in Uncharted 2, <laughs> like, climbing up a big statue thing. Um, another thing that Ahmed does that I forgot to mention is he also goes to the Citadel of the Moon, where he gets an invisibility cloak. Because he needs one of those. Uh, Anime Wong uh, uses knockout incense on the princess and poisons her. Um, to set the stage for the kind of uh, yeah. amazing uh, uh, rescue from from the Mongol prince. And so they see that she's dying on the crystal ball. And so they all pile onto the flying carpet to fly back to the, the palace. And where... the flying carpet affects... Oh, oh my god oh my god maybe so the best good. effect in the whole movie 
Yeah, yeah. Like, at first, you know, there's, like, a magic rope that he uses, and I'm like, oh my god, that's oh, yeah, a really we, cool effect. We didn't even mention Way back the magic in the beginning rope. of the movie. Yeah. He uses a magic rope to, like, scale walls. He just throws it up in the air, and then climbs up the rope as it hangs in the air. So cool. Blew my mind. And then, like, when I saw this magic carpet take off, it my jaw was on the floor. Yeah. It was <laughs> it's so, so good. good. Um, so they all fly back to Baghdad. The Mongol prince uses his magic apple to heal the princess. Um, and then all the villains argue over who has the coolest magic item at that point. They're all like, no, mine's coolest. Mine's coolest. And the princess is like, all of these would be useless if it weren't for the other two. Because, like, you never could have healed me with the apple if you yeah. didn't know I was dying. And you couldn't fly here. You couldn't fly here if you didn't know, you know. So it's like... She's mainly stalling to to let Doug come right. back. Um, so then the Mongol prince is like, all right, activate secret, you know, soldier in- initiative. Um, and all <laughs> the Mongol order so- 66. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And so all the Mongol soldiers like throw off their like, you know, peasant robes and bring out their swords and shit and swarm the city at night and take over. Yeah. Now, obviously, um, they're going to lose in the end, right? The hero's going to defeat them. Sure. Uh, in actual history, so. though, the Mongols did successfully take over Baghdad. Mm. Well, for how uh, long? I didn't look that. I didn't look that far into no. it. But uh, was it only for a day until uh, a humble thief arrived with uh, magic powder <laughs> and made a whole army to fight <clears throat> them off? No, no. The Mongols almost took over the entire world. Uh, oh. They they took over Baghdad in a more typical uh, Mongol fashion, which was siege. Mm. Um, yeah. So they they sieged the city for like a week and a half uh, until until they were able to take it over in like uh, the 13th century. I, There's I like, a little his, history for you. There you go. <laughs> I, I like the movie's version better, which is that they had a secret Order 66 inside the castle. <laughs> The, the Mongol prince then, you know, he's he captures the other two princes and he says, uh, you shall add joy to the wedding festival by being boiled in oil. And you see they're preparing like a giant oil pit with like yeah. stirring it and stuff. And I'm like, oh, this movie can't get any better. <laughs> um, and then Ahmed returns and summons a bunch of soldiers with his magic chest. Uh, I feel like the magic chest sort of takes the place of the genie a bit in terms of like his mm-hmm. magic thing that sort of gets him out of jams, at least in, in the end. Yeah. Anime Wong's character has this sort of like change of heart because the, the, the Mongol prince uh, tries to have her killed. And so then she like runs out and helps Ahmed get into the palace, which he does using his invisibility cloak when he like, he's like fighting off dudes while being invisible. And then, you know, there's, uh, he gets in and he saves the princess and they, they fly through the city on the magic carpet whole new world they fly past the moon like an et <laughs> and then it uh, it returns to um some sort of special effects that went into the uh, some 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 words that were spelled out in the sky and mm-hmm. stars a la the letters sfx in lion king <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> or True. sex depending on uh what, no, what you believe it's, it's it's f i think uh but um, they say happiness must be earned. This is the the thing of the movie is that yeah. he he is unhappy when he's a th- or, or 
when he's a thief and he has a goal, he can't get that goal until he puts in the legwork. Mm-hmm. So at the beginning and end of the movie, you're seeing the sky and it says, happiness must be earned. Another just effects thing, there's a great shot. I think this is done just purely through wires of Ahmed and the princess on the flying carpet, like flying over a crowd. Yeah. And it's just an, an incredible shot. It's, yeah. it's so cool. Um, Everything to do with the magic carpet is so amazing. Yes. So good. This movie is the fucking coolest, and I love it. (laughs) (laughs) But we got more films to talk about. More movies. We got some. Uh, (laughs) What do we do? (laughs) What do we do with all this? Well, we have four more. I think they fall into two uh, sort of categories, right? We have our two sort of like high drama films are two sort of like really inventive weirdo movies okay well let's go inventive weirdo and talk about our first ziga vertov movie right Uh, maybe his first movie i don't think it's actually his first movie but first one that we're covering uh kino eye which is basically um a la man with a movie camera have you seen man with a movie camera i have seen man with a movie camera i have not seen kino eye I, same. Um, a la Man with a Movie Camera, it's kind of like this manifesto on what cinema can be. Mm-hmm. And like Man with a Movie Camera, uh, when I saw it a decade ago, I was like, okay, this is cool, but what's the point? <laughs> I and I was much more impressed when I saw Man with a Movie Camera than this, which makes sense because you made it like six years later or whatever. Yeah. Not six years, like five years. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an experimental film. It's like Zikovertov being like, hey, movies can be anything. Like, they're a whole different... I do think the, like, the philosophy behind it is something I really agree with, which is that, like... Yes. The, the kino eye, the cinema eye, is not the human eye, and it doesn't have mm-hmm. to abide by the same rules. So there's a lot of this movie is sort of documentary footage of just life in the countryside in the Soviet Union in 1924... Yeah, it's yeah, it's a documentary, um, essentially, but it's yeah. a documentary where they're kind of like messing with stuff, right? But time. it's like it's like establishing or. this kind of sense of reality through the documentary stuff of like here's people they're going to work, they're doing you know handing out flyers, getting food, whatever, yeah. and then it breaks that through some kind of like camera trickery. So then it'll be like, hey, these people working on a farm, and then like a bunch of rev- the footage is reversed, so we're seeing, like, in reverse, a cow going from being meat to back to being a cow, kind of. Yeah. Um, there, There's a card that comes up that says, Kino Eye moves time backwards. Mm-hmm. So, basically, it's, 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 it's saying, like, here are the ways that you can make cinema that does not have to be the way that reality works. Um and and so it has a couple of these reverse segments of a cow being unslaughtered and bread being unbaked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think along with this, this is like a it's a propaganda movie mm-hmm. um, about the Soviet Union, uh, and it's it's heaping all of this like praise on these um, these young pioneers, which are this kind of like Soviet version of Boy Scouts and Girl yeah. Scouts. Uh, though being presented in a way as if they're like self-governing entities <laughs> uh, and with no adults around. Uh, so they're like putting up propaganda and it's like, it's like 
cute and also like patriotic. Um, but then there's also a lot of this stuff of, and I think like another thing that it's doing with this kind of like reverse process of, of unmaking the food is that it is, it is showing you all of the steps of like the labor uh, involved in making the food. Mm -hmm. Right. It's saying like, look at the butcher whose job is this. Look at the farmer whose job is this. Uh, Look at the, uh, you know, look at all the steps in between and all of like the human power that goes into the food that you eat. Right. So it's like coming at this, like from a worker's perspective too. Yeah, for sure. Um, My note on this is that watching a cow getting, uh, Butcher in Reverse reminded me of watching Guy Fieri eating in reverse. I don't know if you're familiar with that (laughs) internet phenomenon. (laughs) Um, I think it started on Conan. Um, He did a thing of Guy Fieri eating in reverse, which is uh, as upsetting as it sounds. Um, But yeah, I I did think that the, the way that it, it, it sort of would take something that is, is uh, sort of very documentary style. And then, trying to kind of subvert that through some kind of, you know, it does a lot of overcranked like slow motion stuff. There's like Kino eye shows you how to dive properly or something like that. And it's all, it's guy yeah. diving in slow motion. Um, there's some like animation and like animated diagram stuff, which was kind of cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's like a Lottie Reiniger esque, like cut out yeah. animation at one point. Um, there is, also like at the end of each reel there's like a uh, there's this like an animation style called pixelation not like pixels but like with an eye mm. uh, pixelation that is uh the term for basically like using human bodies uh mm-hmm. as stop motion props and uh so it uses a pixelated uh uh hand drawing like end of the second reel uh, right. uh yeah. in like a pen it's just kind of like, and and also there's um, uh, this is not animation, but like another kind of formal thing that it does is this like very like modern feeling montage where they're showing uh the kids like building their camp that they're living in. Mm-hmm. Uh, another kind of Kino eye thing of like montage, which is definitely a big Soviet yeah. thing. There's um, there's the the vodka moms dancing at the beginning. Yeah. Which it um, uses like a lot of like quick cutting and like extreme yeah. close ups. A lot yeah. a lot more like quick, like kind of more rhythmic cutting, I think too. Mm-hmm. Especially in that, that dancing bit. Although I will say, even though I think the the editing style is much faster, I still feel like the overall pace of this movie feels very slow. To me anyway. It's a lot of like pastoral stuff. Yeah. That Yeah. That like there's a lot of cutting. And so it makes it feel in the moment right. very fast. But it, it's not necessarily and, showing you new things very yeah. much. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, I, you're left wondering, like, what was the point of this edit, mm-hmm. right? Like, what was it doing? And a lot of the time it wasn't doing much. Yeah. So Ziga hasn't quite figured out the the montage editing quite yet. <laughs> um, there's a, a very silly thing where uh, it it shows a shot of a street and it says the same place from a different angle. And it's the same shot, like flip sideways. And I'm like, Oh, Ziga, you cheeky bugger. Um, <laughs> see, see, that's the stuff. I mean, I, I'm, I'm excited to see man with a movie camera again in context. I think there's, now, there's but... a lot more of that man in the movie camera that like playful 
like messing with the form kind of stuff. Right. When I when I saw Men with a Movie Camera in college and they did that kind of stuff, I was just like, come on. <laughs> right. I mean, back then it was probably very, you know, the novelty of it, I'm sure, was a lot stronger. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know if I have a lot much else to say about this. Uh, yeah, me either. It was. Um, it felt interesting on a kind of an academic level, but it wasn't particularly. You know, just watching it as a film, I didn't get that much out of it, other than just like yeah. interesting seeing an earlier version of something that I think is is very cool and important in quotes to film history, which is like the later Zika for Tub stuff. So one other thing that I think is is formally experimental mm. in certain ways and is the first silent movie I ever loved was Sherlock Jr. I mean, uh, it's uh, it's it's a, a pretty famous one, I would say. I saw I saw this one in college too, but not in a class, just uh, casually, yeah. and it became like I was like a huge advocate for this movie. I mean, like, it's every, it's oh, very fun. Yeah, yeah. I really had never seen this all the way through. I'd seen the one or one of the several like famous scenes of the 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 movie screen scene where he's he goes yeah. to the screen and then it's the scene is changing and it's all the best match cuts anyone has ever done buster keaton in this movie is a projectionist indeed he is eh? who wants to be a detective eh? uh, is no, that no, i uh no no i i'm just a projectionist uh but representation on screen is very important there you go uh <laughs> Uh, and yeah, he he's reading a book. He wants to become uh, a detective. He's reading a book called How to Be a Detective. I mean, it seems like a good place to start. And um, he falls asleep in the projection booth, which is a big no-no. Uh, <laughs> would, or at least while you're running so. a movie. Yeah. I've fallen asleep in a projection booth, but not while movie a 35 millimeter film is running. <laughs> <laughs> How specifically you're qualifying that? <laughs> Look, sometimes you're you're in the booth until three in the morning, and then you gotta be back at seven in yeah, the morning. Hey, I, I and it's hear an you. hour drive home. Nah, nah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, he falls asleep, and so it's able to kind of break with reality mm-hmm. uh, and and be in this kind of heightened reality uh, because most of the movie takes place in the dreams of a projectionist who wants to be a detective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In his dream, a kind of like, you know, Bugs Bunny dying, uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, like ghostly form emerges from uh, his sleeping body and then becomes material and walks down into the theater. And th- thus begins this kind of thing that like, I was so impressed by when I mm-hmm. saw it in college. I still think it's great. Um, I mean, yeah, match cuts are really hard to do, and these are, like, nearly flawless. Oh, yeah, not even just the match cuts, though, but, like, the fact of him walking into the screen, Mm, right? Yeah. He starts off in the audience, watching the movie along with the audience, then he walks up toward the screen, and then steps into it. Like, there's there's a cut where it stops being something projected, and becomes a three-dimensional stage behind the mm-hmm. screen and so in this very seamless way he walks up and then walks just straight inside the movie mm-hmm. 
so good, so interesting and experimental. That was the thing that really blew my mind yeah. at the time. I think that's great. And then another kind of messing with form thing, like you were talking about, is that once he is in the movie, uh, it kind of goes back to not being a 3D set mm-hmm. anymore. It becomes a projection inside of the movie theater that you're still seeing around wrapping around the outside. But uh, then he starts experiencing editing as a being that is slipped out of the landscape of the movie. It's like the scene keeps changing, but he stays in the same spot. So then it's like, oh no, like he, he fell off a bench because it turned into a different, it turned into a rock or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, They're more fun than what I just described, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, he like is trying to like walk somewhere and then like, like the scene changes and then it's just a door. And, mm-hmm. and then he runs into the door or he's all of a sudden standing on the edge of a cliff. It, it leaves me wondering a little bit uh, what happened with this movie <laughs> and why it's being edited this way. Uh, it was a normal movie. <laughs> right. And then all of a sudden it's just a bunch of abstract shots of random places. I mean, hey, this is his dream. It doesn't have to operate on a, a strict logic, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I am just impressed with they, they had to have shot because these are all shot in different locations. Some of which are, yeah, one of them is up a mountain. One of them is, like... In the snow. In the snow. One of them is, like, in the ocean. And the match cutting is, like, where Buster Keaton is in the frame is exactly the same between these different scenes. And I I would really like to know how they just planned that. Like, did they, like, put a mark on the lens and just, like, shot everything exactly on that mark or something? I don't know. Right. Yeah. Um... But it, it is so sort of like seamless in its finished version that it's it's still just really impressive to watch. And yeah, so that's like the big thing in the movie. Though there are some like... But there's so uh, much else in it too. Yeah. There's all the great detectives. <laughs> so then it's like the his dream kind of settles into this thing where he's, he's, uh, he's like solving a crime that is, uh, you know, very similar to a crime that he is just experienced where he's you know in the middle of a, of a love triangle um <laughs> with this woman that uh her other suitor has stolen the her dad's uh watch and pawned it and then blamed it on on buster blame it on buster and so in his dream he shows up as a detective as sherlock jr you know the, the, the famous the, detective yeah the son of the famous detective um and he comes in and it's sort of like but it's like the house is kind of fancier. Everyone is sort of dressed in much more like wealthy clothing. Um, and he yes, sort of this has kind this of mix of like the movie that was being played in the theater with his reality. Yeah. Yeah. This sort of like, uh, you know, chamber drama or whatever um, that he then invades and becomes a detective in. <laughs> um, and so he's like, you know, having this aspirational dream of being a detective and solving the, the crime in the scene that we see uh, until until he is eventually woken up and has to solve the crime uh, in real life also. Well, I guess he doesn't really solve the crime in real life. It kind of resolves itself more than anything. But Yeah, yeah. He's, um, he's a bumbler. He's a bit of a bumbler. Yeah, but the, the way it resolves in the dream is uh, just a bunch of great set pieces. 
and like cool Buster Keaton gags. Oh my god! Like once again, there there are some just ridiculous stunts in this movie. In, like I'm still, it is the thing. I, at this point, I shouldn't be as like surprised by like these silent movie stunts, but they are so they are so simultaneously precise and also just wild and insane. Yeah, in particular. Um, there's a point where he's like on top of like a five story building and there's like one of those big arms that, uh, like comes down in front of, uh, like a train track when a train's going Yeah, and there is a car that he is trying to reach that is down on ground level. And so the car starts moving and then he like hops onto the top edge of this like folded up, uh, like train gate and then rides it all the way down and arcs just like perfectly down into the moving car and he just plops into the back seat. But the thing the and timing of the car whoa. driving has to be perfect for that to work. Like all of it is timed out so amazingly. And it's yeah, all done in one yeah. shot. It's not cutting between anything. It's all just this one and wide it's real. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it is uh I think we brought it up on this show before, but the the Everframe of painting video about Jackie Chan stunts. Yeah. And how how much they're kind of, uh, and there's one about Buster Keaton, I think also, um, and how yeah how like if you're gonna do a cool stunt, make sure that you do the whole thing in one shot, otherwise it looks fake because then you even if you did it for real, right? If you have edits in it, it people are gonna right. not think that actually you did. They're gonna it not think that your lizard dragon is real. Yeah, exactly. Um, so. Ah, uh, just the some, just the the like the creativity behind some of them too is so great. There's the one where he has like a woman's dress in this like round, like paper thing that he puts in a window outside the sort of villain's hideout, <laughs> and so he goes in. And he's like, does this whole thing. In the yeah, he gets into to, an altercation. Yeah, where he's like gets the stolen jewels, and then he jumps through the window, through the paper bag, so that, and through the dress, <laughs> so then he is able to just immediately stand up and is wearing a dress, and he can kind of walk away like he's in disguise, and all the villains run out and they're like, "Oh, where'd he go? Where'd he go?" Um, <laughs> There's just a random woman walking by, yeah, and like, yeah, he dresses himself instantly by jumping by jumping through a window. Through a window. So good, <laughs> incredible. Um, and there's there's some amazing like motorcycle stunts in this movie. Um, it does a great thing of like combining different methods and like effects and tricks and things like that. So there's one where there's he's on this like narrow bridge, and two trucks are driving by simultaneously, and he drives over them like perfectly as they line up oh, in the gap oh in the bridge yeah. which isn't a real stunt he drove across straight and it's a double it's like a split screen so like the trucks i see are shot separately but then immediately following that there's a different shot that is done in camera where it's like the bridge starts to collapse and it like he like rides the collapsing bridge down into and then keeps riding the motorcycle it's crazy i feel like us just describing stunts is maybe not the best podcasting but 
this is why it's tough to yeah. <laughs> well is us describing movie plots the best podcast yeah <laughs> i mean whatever i feel like my opinion of this movie is it's great and everyone should watch it so yes it's only 45 minutes long yeah this i think is like if you want something even more approachable than thief of baghdad i think this was like mm-hmm. kind of my first yeah. silent movie as like a non-child um and i loved this so much yeah it's really it's it's short it's full of action it's really funny super good if i have one knock against it it's that the combination of like movie theater projectionist stuff and detective stuff feels kind of slapdash it's like what are two occupations the buster keaton could have in a movie you can make a detective movie or projectionist movie let's just do them at once like yeah we have enough gags for like you know two reels here or two reels here let's just throw them together you know <laughs> right um but uh but it works and it it it, it integrates in a in an interesting way it's instead of just being like one thing another thing it, it does yeah. combine the two uh this movie had a lot of laughs in it yeah <laughs> it did and speaking of laughs the last laugh last by laugh. fw now. A film that also is taking some big kind of, not necessarily formal leaps, but is pushing filmmaking forward in in a lot of ways, I feel like. For sure. Um, I mean, honestly, I think that one of the major, like, theses behind this movie uh, is a lack of title cards. Mm -hmm. This Pretty much none, except for the beginning and the end. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would like to just consider this movie like basically just a movie with no title cards. Mm-hmm. And I think it's like giving itself this really, uh, you know, FW now considered title cards to be like um, not graceful mm-hmm. uh, when when making silent films. I agree. Which with I him. think was a, it was a general consensus around then that like the fewer title cards, the better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this one is like, let's make a movie with no title cards uh more or less i also think i don't know if this was necessarily the intent but i i think that as especially like german movies were getting released in other countries in europe or the united states or wherever i think the lack of title cards was probably it helped it helped sell it in other countries because it was like you don't have to translate you don't have to make new title cards for it this thing this thing but there's like this plays in a kind of universal way it's not bound by language and even the language that's in this movie that's built into the set is a made-up language and that's the thing that murnau does i know does also in uh sunrise i don't know about language specifically but like sunrise doesn't really take place in europe or the u.s it's sort of this nebulous just place Mm -hmm. um and this movie feels the same way where it's like it's it's uh i thought it was just german (laughs) i mean it, it certainly plays that way and that's sort of how it's but I mean, it's all shot in on sets or mostly on sets, um, and so right. it, well, yeah. I just mean like the text, the little bit of text that's in the movie, something yeah. like a like the, like a wedding invitation or something like that. Uh, the wedding um, invitation might be in German, but um, the like street signs and things like that are oh, okay in like gotcha. an, an invented language. Yeah, I kind of thought for a second that this movie was set in, like, New York City. It feels very, like, tenement apartments mm. kind of thing, uh, like, juxtaposed with midtown glamour. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but I think this might just be like a general kind of city and like residential kind of setup. Um, yeah. This this movie is called The Last Laugh, but it's not very funny. Um, no, it's not super. Not a lot of laughs in this one. <laughs> it's 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 pretty. It's actually like in some ways like the darkest movie that we talked about this uh uh the, or at least like the bleakest i think it's, like maybe it doesn't go to as dark places but it right. like it has a very bleak per- perspective absolutely yeah this is about a guy who um it's like an old man who has worked at this like fancy hotel uh in the kind of central city area mm-hmm for uh many many years and he uh has been a doorman for the hotel and he wears like a very put together doorman costume uh you know Mm -hmm. uh, uniform uh it looks very like you know just kind of military regalia very official um, like a yeah fancy a fancy doorman uniform yeah he he takes a lot, lot of, of pride. A lot of buttons. In, yes, a lot of buttons. The buttons are a thing. Uh, he takes a lot of pride in his job and his and like the prestige that it implies, being part of this like fancy hotel, interacting with rich people, having this kind of like outfit and and profession that seems very like put together and you know like I I I'm an important person and he lives. Uh, in this kind of like economic, economically distant thing from from that yeah. reality of his yeah. workplace. As I was saying, this kind of like like high rise tenement, laundry hanging across mm-hmm. the way, yeah, uh, big fire escapes, you know, that kind of thing. Um, uh, in this other part of town, but he's the guy in this poor part of town who like works in this rich area. He kind of like really takes pride in what he's doing. He salutes people Mm -hmm. as he's coming in. Everyone's like, this is the guy who, you know, acts like a rich guy, you know, he like helps kids that are getting bullied. And he's like, Hey, yeah. Chin up. You know, he's very respected in his neighborhood for sure. Uh, and then one day, uh, his boss sees him, uh, his kind of nosy middle manager boss sees him like enjoying a drink on the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's like, this guy's slacking. I should pay more attention to what he's doing. And he also kind of sees that he's getting, he's getting old and he can't carry the packages in or the, the big, big, the big, the big suitcases, uh, yeah. suitcases that, um, uh, that the, the rich patrons come bring it to the hotel. Uh, he has to delegate it. Um, and so the his boss ends up saying like this thing that you've done for so long we appreciate your service uh but it turns out that the guy who uh was the guy in the bathroom uh the old man who's in the bathroom who hands you a towel when you're uh mm-hmm. done at the sink uh he was just sent off to a retirement home his life is in its <laughs> twilight his his life is ending and you're getting a little too old for this doorman thing. Uh, and so we're going to replace you. And uh, that is, uh, and, and now you're going to be one step away from one foot in the, in the grave, uh, sitting in this basement bathroom, handing out towels to people. Uh, and he is crushed 
by this. Yeah. So crushed that he will not tell anyone about it. Yeah. And tries he's, to... He's put so much of it into his personality, you know? Yeah. So then he, uh, at night, he sneaks back into the hotel to steal his uniform back so that when he returns home, he can still wear his nice, shiny doorman uniform and sort of act like he still has this very fancy job. Um, yeah. But then he has to, like, put it into into a locker at the train station before he goes into work every day. And when they take this uniform off him, when there he's being demoted or whatever, yeah. he is, like, stunned. He looks like he's in shock, yeah. basically. And he, like, uh, he, like he tries to, like, lift a big suitcase to show he can still do it, and he can't. Yeah, it's it's really sad. Yeah. There are parts of this movie that are, like, a, maybe a little overacted, uh, a la Orlock, but... Mm. Um, I, but also like, you're, you're just like seeing how like devastated this guy is because like everything that made him respect himself is being like ripped away from him. Mm -hmm. Uh, and also like his like level of like economic power is being taken away. He's, he's old. He can't do many jobs and he's like poor. Mm -hmm. Uh, and another part of the movie is that he's like having to pay for a dowry uh, for his daughter who's getting married. Is it his daughter and, or is his niece? Oh, I'm I don't not know sure. if it's ever quite specified, but yeah, it's yeah, something like that. Because there's like no intertitles in this movie, like he doesn't have a name, nobody has mm-hmm. a name, yeah, uh, like there isn't any dialogue. Uh, it's all told like very gracefully, I think, through mm-hmm. visuals, through action. So there's a lot of this back and forth. He gets super drunk, and uh, they're a lot of the um, visual stuff that were that you were mentioning uh, is really on full display when mm. he is getting drunk. Yeah, uh, it's a lot of this kind of like subjective view of reality, uh, where his his experience of being drunk is making think it's like it's showing like a double vision thing. Mm-hmm. Everything's blurry and spinning around. Uh, like scale is getting all weird. Uh, and there's a shot that's like from Inception in this movie of like the buildings are like folding in on top of him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's incredible. Yeah, a lot of like really really cool effects to sell like the drunkenness, but also just like a lot, like some dreams and like a mm-hmm. lot of just like general just anguish being expressed through the visuals. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, that, that I guess is like a lot of the formal stuff that's happening here. I mean, all throughout it, though, like it, it, it. This movie is, I guess, somewhat known for it how much it's moving the camera. Yes. Um, sort of in you know in comparison to a lot of the other movies from this time period are pretty locked off. Like they'll be they'll pan over here and there'll be a bit of like in um. Sometimes there's some Dolly stuff. A little Sometimes bit, some but... some Dolly stuff. There was some in in Safety Last. There was some in Greed. Um, this movie has a lot of Dolly stuff. Like yeah. a lot, a lot of Dolly stuff. Um, I was wondering if it was like actually Steadicam or like handheld or whatever. Some of it, I'm pretty sure, is handheld or at least like strapped to something. Um, and yeah, I don't because I don't know if it was done on a Dolly track. I think a lot of it is maybe on like a wheeled Dolly. Like going down hallways and like coming up like through doors, that sort of thing. 
That makes sense. Um, yeah, I was kind of like, I was kind of like, this is moving. This camera's moving so far, and I should be able to see a track if there yeah. is one. Um, and just like the opening shot of this movie is like coming down an elevator and coming out of the oh, elevator yeah. through the lobby of the hotel, like through oh the revolving God. doors at the front. Yeah, In- insane. Um, I wrote down watching this movie, nineteen twenty four, must have been like watching the movie Ambulance. Now, I don't know if you've seen. The, uh, the Michael Bay movie, Michael from Bay last film year. Ambulance from last year, which has it has a lot of drone uh, cinematography in it of like the cameras literally like flying through objects and like through doors and like along the sides oh. of buildings. It's it's wacky. I don't know if all of it is really earned in that movie, but it's camera stuff that has never been put up on screen really before in on that scale. Um. And that applies here, I think, in 1920s cinematography. There's a lot of stuff that uh, I don't necessarily think um, has never been done before, but I think is being done really well in this and with real intent, which I think makes mm-hmm. it stand out. Um, there's, yeah, there's a great bit where he, uh, the main character, is sort of having a, a, a daydream um which involves him you know lifting a bunch of suitcases over his head and he's just like ev- and his, everyone is like adoring him um and there's a, yeah. an, a really amazing single shot where he is carrying the suitcase into the ho- lobby of the hotel and the footage is kind of messed up i don't think it's supposed to look as blurry as it does i think it it seems like there's like a problem with it at least that was my impression because i don't see any real reason why it should be so blurry I think those scenes were supposed to be him still being drunk. During those, like, the drunken scenes and the dream scenes, it was, like, throwing a lot... Like, each kind of um, scene, each kind of set piece was, like, using, like, different um, like different effects to, like, sell this kind of, like, otherworldly or, like, you know, not, not real, surreal mm-hmm. um, kind of view. Um like when he was drunk initially, like there's this like, um, there's like the background is like moving like separately from him. Mm-hmm. Uh, there during the dream, uh, there's a, a really striking thing with the the set where they like there's this revolving door in front of the hotel, mm-hmm. and it's like a normal revolving door, but in his dream, the revolving door like goes up yeah. all the way into the it's sky like, it's like a five it's story like, tall revolving door it's so cool. yeah it's like such a, a great image and it's yeah. like this completely like just dream logic like it's so imposing like the front mm-hmm. of this building because it means so much to him you know but so the he's sort of trying to you know cover up the fact that he's lost his his fancy job and he's now a bathroom attendant but um a woman from his building ends up seeing him in the bathroom and is horrified. It's like really seems like genuinely like horrified at what has happened to him. Yeah. Which I have to wonder is like, is her, is that actually her reaction or is that almost like his perception of her reaction? Mm -hmm. Because it's, it seems so outsized to me. Um, but so then she, she goes back to the building and it's, you know, the gossip spreads quickly through the, all the old biddies at the apartment who were all like, you know, <laughs> laughing at him behind his back. And then all of a sudden the entire town doesn't respect him anymore. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, there's some really great 
cinematography stuff and here too we're like you we see like the gossip like spreading through the apartment complex yeah. and there's some like whip pans almost there's uh, a couple really great sort of like really quick like dolly in moves on like someone's ear as they're listening oh yeah right yeah. um stuff that reminded me of like scorsese or paul thomas anderson the way that they like you know they like sort of you know doing like whip the camera around like really quickly dolly in on stuff like that kind of really energetic camera movement is something that I really don't associate with this time period of filmmaking yeah. at all. This and Kino um, Eye definitely have some yeah cri- some wild movement. Uh, he goes back to the hotel to give his 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 uh, uniform back. Um, he like right. there's his... no there's no need to hold on to it and keep the illusion up anymore. Yeah, like it, you get the sense that like his daughter like doesn't really like want to be associated with him anymore like so yeah i mean it like it, his I, I believe the the woman who sees him or at least one of the women who finds out is the mother of his daughter or or niece's mm-hmm. like fiance and so this person is like you work in a bathroom so you can't afford a dowry anymore we don't respect you we're gonna laugh at you and also you should just like go away basically yeah. Like, all these people are just ridiculously cruel to him. Yeah. So he gets, like, shamed out of his home, basically. Yeah. And he just kind of returns to the bathroom. And that's where we get our, like, one of our two intertitles, right? Because, like, one (laughs) at the beginning kind of setting it up. And then this other one where it's like, this is where the story should end. Like, yeah, this and is... at this point, at this point, like, he is spending so much time just, like, stunned and, like, hurt, you mm-hmm. know? Like, he he's, like, insulted and, and like, thinking about how everyone, uh, like, no one respects him anymore, how he's going to die poor, and he's, like, about, and, like, he's got one foot in the grave, like, the, the bathroom attendant is the last thing you do before... Yeah. You just, you know, that's like, rot that's away, like code basically. for like, you're about to die as you become the bathroom attendant. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, he spends a lot of this movie just like staring off into space, just like being upset. And so it ends in with him, just this like wide shot of the bathroom mm-hmm. and him just like sitting in this chair, like right in the center of the frame, just like depressed. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's when the title card comes right. on and it's like. For him and many other people who are in his situation, this is how the story goes. Yeah. He would um, die. He would just do this until he's dead. Yeah. I want to bring up just Emil Jennings. Jennings. Jennings uh, is the actor who plays uh, the yeah. doorman. Um, and he's, he's very good in this movie. Yeah. Um, it's a very sad Santa Claus. But so then the... The title card after that is like, yeah, this is this is really the end of the story. This is what happens to people. And then it's like, but the writer has taken pity on this man, and we're gonna have a little epilogue. This is this is dumb. <laughs> I think this is bad. Yeah. I I I think that I I think that this epilogue uh tarnishes the movie. It's funny though, ways. because it, it is this like tacked on like superficial happy ending. But it's so it's, it's so upfront about it. It's so like this is bullshit. Like this is this yeah. isn't reality. This isn't how things actually happen. But we're gonna show it to you anyway because like, eh, sure, why not? 
it feels it feels like it's made by a different person. It feels like it was almost like they felt like they needed to add it on. Everything in this movie felt like it's going to be a tragedy. It's going to mm-hmm. have a bad ending, you know? And, like, I don't know whether or not this was, like, intended from the very beginning, but it really doesn't mm. feel like it. Like, um, they're literally doing, like, the Wayne's World, like, let's do a super happy ending now. And do-do-do-do, you know? But it's like it's that kind of like meta almost in how it's approaching it. It's like, oh yeah, this is like a this is this is supposed to feel out of place. Like I don't know, it 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 still felt like there was real intent behind it for me anyway. Yeah. In that, um, I also just think it's a really well. It's still the the craft behind it is still really good. So like, just the reveal of it. So like after we show that we had like a newspaper showing that like oh some rich guy died in the bathroom and left his fortune to the first person who found him it was the bathroom attendant and we're sort of, <laughs> it's there's a shot sort of like moving all through the restaurant which is also great moving all throughout the restaurant all these massive you know dishes and things all these fancy people and we finally come to a giant like thing a shrimp cocktail or something and they lift it up and they reveal our main character who's now like in a tuxedo with a big napkin and he's like eating all this food and caviar. And he's like, you know, bring in the other, uh, you know, the, 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 the night, the night watchman nice to him, the yeah, night watchman the night who was watchman. nice to him, brings him over and he's like, Hey, anything you want here, just have as much food as you need. And then it's like, they're like, Oh, anything the, 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 the middle manager comes out and he's like, oh, excuse me, can I get you anything? And it's, you know, he's laughing all the way to the bank and he's just, he's living it up and he's just like throwing money away to people. There's like a beggar comes up to him outside the hotel and he's like, you know what? Right in my carriage. I'm going to take you anywhere you want to go. The crucial thing about all this is that like he is, um, unlike the other rich people previously in the movie, he is being like respectful Mm -hmm. and uh, to, to the service staff around him. Uh, he understands their position, so he's just like super nice to them, giving mm-hmm. them money, whatever. You know, I'm a millionaire, so I'm gonna like treat waiters right, basically. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this movie was written by uh, Carl uh, Meyer, who also wrote or co-wrote Caligari. I feel like the kind of weird ending feels a little in line with that too. I know, I know that might not have mm-hmm. been his intent with Caligari, but um, yeah, I don't know. I I think I liked the weird ending more than more than you did but it is it it does feel super out of place but it, that i don't know it it worked for me uh yeah i watched this movie with uh jack vernick who was on our irma episode uh and he hadn't seen the movie in a couple of years and uh uh when we got to the end he was like oh my god i forgot about this part yeah. i was telling you i love the movie but i think i just blocked this ending from my it mind also it to bring up scorsese again it also reminded me of taxi driver a bit which also has this like weirdly out of place happy ending at the end hmm. that is like hmm. where did this come from and it it feels almost the kind of the same way where it, it there's something kind of um uh what's the word i'm thinking of subversive about telling this super dark bleak as hell story and then having this sort of like surreal happy ending at the end of it where it's sort of like this isn't actually how the story should end but we're going to show it to you as sort of this 
yeah i don't know there's something about it that is compelling i think um so in reading about this i think there's some interesting behind the scenes stuff i mean i think the whole main theme of this movie like economic anxiety feels very topical for 20s Mm -hmm. germany Hmm. um uh and then i found a quote by a um a french german uh film critic from the 20s um who talked about how sort of like uniforms were a much bigger deal in german culture oh Hmm. and uh so a lot of eisner this critic said uh this film is is preeminently a german tragedy and can only be understood in a country where uniform is king not to say god a non-German mind will have difficulty in comprehending all its tragic implications. Hmm. Um, and I, I definitely got that, like, his uniform is a big deal. Like, yeah. if only to him as a character. Like, this character cares so deeply about his uniform and what it represents. Um, but knowing that that's even more of a, like, cultural thing uh, in Germany, I think especially in Germany in the 20s, um... It, it does add a, another kind of layer to it. I think also, um, you know, I was mentioning how the, the breadth of subject matter with, uh, or at least narrative style with uh, silent films, uh, having a uh, piece of shit protagonists like in <laughs> Greed. Uh, this is a movie that is just such a specific plot, right? Mm. Like, I, it's hard to imagine anything like this getting made nowadays like a guy is a doorman and then he becomes a restroom attendant and he's sad about it (laughs) like like this is something that i i feel like the the specificity of it is Mm. really unique yeah uh i i appreciate that a lot it is because it is kind of so of its time yeah it does feel like something yeah just wouldn't exist now in in a really in like in a cool way i think um uh gotta shout out uh carl uh freund who was the director of photography on this movie um he also later shot metropolis for fritz lang and uh uh the 1931 dracula um he also directed the original boris karlov the mummy which is pretty cool Mm. haven't seen that still um uh well and, i guess we'll be getting to it this year uh eventually um he was also the director of photography on i love lucy and kind of <laughs> okay. helped he, he kind of helped define the entire like visual style of sitcoms whoa wow so like this guy is just crushing it left and right in terms of like <laughs> laying the groundwork for cinematography um really impressive um but uh, shall we move on? Film about living in a society. I mean, that is what both these movies are about, basically, right? Yes, this movie is the original, the OG. I'm going to become the Joker movie. <laughs> well, yeah, pretty much. It predates. It predates even the movie that the Joker is based on. Yes. Uh, but yeah, it's very Joker esque. Well, it's about um, it's about a guy who kind of 
his life goes to shit and he becomes a clown and then he does murder. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, those are those are light murders. <laughs> anyway. Well, they're they're much more exciting, cool murders because they involve lions. So. Yes. We're getting ahead of ourselves. This um, is He Who Gets Slapped. Great title. Uh, great title. Again, you couldn't make a title like that now. That's probably like, it's not. a whole sentence. Yeah. Well, I don't know. There uh, are occasionally movies that have weird long titles like that. Um, uh, this movie is so cool. Uh, um, it is. It is very cool. Very wild. It is a weird movie. Yes. I I was a fan though. I sure. I think this movie is. Uh, yeah. It is. It. I I I think it's. The last laugh is playing with some like themes, right? Of mm-hmm. like class. Uh, Greed's playing with some very on the nose themes. I think this movie it like gives you stuff to chew on. You know, yes. it, it, like, it is not a movie that gives you easy answers, which is yeah, I think very unlike most of the silent films that we've watched tend to be yeah, fairly yeah. clear cut in what morals are kind of putting forward. Mm-hmm. Whereas this movie is just like, hey man. World's crazy, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is cra- which is ridiculous because like this is directed by Victor Shostrom, who mm-hmm. has now uh, uh, started making movies in Hollywood and has Americanized his last name as Victor Seastrom. Indeed, as when uh, I saw that in the opening credits, I was like, "Oh boy!" <laughs> I mean, it's it like that's some people did back in the day. It's like they would anglicize their names. I guess yeah. people still do that. Um, but I, but we've, we've I, watched I thought- all of his 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 proper movies, right? His, yeah. His Scandinavian films where he's credited as Shostrom. And then it's like, Victor Seastrom presents he who gets slapped. Yeah. And it's like, he's gone Hollywood, man. <laughs> um, uh, but I thought that, you know, his last movie that we talked about on the podcast, right. the Phantom Carriage, I hated that movie. Yeah. Not uh, one of because... his better uh, films i didn't think Spe- like but specifically because it had these like stupidly like yeah very more like simple morals yeah, su- right very moralistic very preachy very clear-cut and what it's trying to put forward and yeah this one like it's so complex mm-hmm. uh there's i i i think there's just so much going on with this movie but let's let's talk about what uh what's going on in it yeah uh so this is uh, our also our first Lon Chaney movie uh, that uh, we talked about. True, yeah. I mean, uh, I also watched his Hunchback and Notre Dame film from yeah. the previous year, um, but we didn't have time to talk about it. Um, Lon Chaney is good at his job. Uh, reason why that dude was so famous. Um, yeah, Lon Chaney is great in this movie. Yeah. Uh, really, really good acting. And this is um, a, a much less showy role, I think, than... Quasimodo mm-hmm. in, in Hunchback. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's less of a kind of like transformative makeup thing. Um, Which he's famous for. Right. Back in the 20s, actors did their own makeup. There wasn't a dedicated makeup department. And so Lon Chaney was the guy making all these like wild prosthetics and like monster makeup and things like that. He kind of uh, uh, was a pioneer in that in that hmm. field. Um and this in the in this he he plays a, a a sad clown, so it's less it's less transformative, but it's still I think a lot of what he's doing as an actor here is is in line with I think what he's known for. 
Right. Um, so this is Lon Chaney is playing uh, a scientist mm-hmm. who has a who's been working on um, working on these like really in depth things he's been working on it for years and he has this ri- this uh benefactor this this rich benefactor mm-hmm. who has the been baron his research a baron yeah. baron regnard uh who has been funding his research and after years or whatever he finally makes a breakthrough yeah he we never really find out what his breakthrough is right like it's pretty no, nebulous like yeah he's a scientist he made a breakthrough yeah it's not germane i guess but uh he he's he goes to his wife and he's like oh my god i finally i finally figured it out i finally i finally done this i'm going to become a rich and famous scientist mm-hmm. uh and he says to the baron like thank you so much for funding me all of this time i appreciate like everything that you've done for me and he's like of course of course and uh so uh paul uh who lon Chaney plays uh goes up to this academy of scientists and he's like, I'm going to present my finding. And he is introduced by the Baron. Mm. And in that introduction, the Baron just spills all the beans. And uh, fully takes credit for his discovery. Yeah. Uh, Which just goes and- to show, never trust a guy who goes by the title, The Baron. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, yeah, Lon Chaney's character, he is... He's like, what's what's going on here? You know, like, uh, 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 you're gonna you're gonna say that this was my idea, right? He he goes up to he goes up to the Baron and says, like, please, please, like, 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 tell them the truth. Tell them that I that this was mine and that you're just you just said it in front of them. And the Baron says, you're just some lab assistant. And I don't I don't. Like you didn't come up with any of this. Like I don't, I don't respect you. You're, you're, you're not, you're not real. And the scientists are all like, oh my god, oh my god. And then, and then, a formative moment happens mm. in his life, which is uh, the Baron. After all of this pleading, the Baron is trying to like dismiss him to make himself feel superior, and he slaps Paul. And then when he slaps him. All of the scientists laugh at him. Yeah, they're like uh, the the, the academy of old dudes that he's been yes. presenting to. The not non non wizard hatted scientists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they all they all laugh at him, and he's crushed. Not unlike um, last laugh guy, mm. doorman. So then he, uh, he returns home to his yes. wife. Are they married? I don't think they're actually. Yeah, I I, I think so. Uh, yeah, so he returns home to his wife, and uh, he tells her the news of what happened today, and she's, like, weirdly distant about it. Uh, and then the Baron mm, walks mm, in, mm, mm, and mm. it turns out that uh, she has been with the Baron this entire time, and uh, and she doesn't care that her husband was laughed at and uh, made a fool of and, and disgraced. Uh, yeah. Because she's with the Baron now. She says, you with your silly face and stupid books. <laughs> and then she laughs at him and calls him a clown. And, and that's when his mind fully breaks. Yeah. Uh, he you, has... You can see the moment where his heart breaks in half. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then uh, the Baron says, who is the most popular now, Paul? 
Ooh, that's two references in ten seconds. Nice. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, Paul, that works. Okay. Uh, so then we we flash forward, uh, and he has. <laughs> he's he's so done we, what anyone would do in this situation. He's doing the circus. Yes, uh, and he has done this sort of like reclaiming of mm-hmm. this moment. Where he was slapped uh, and made a fool of by becoming this clown who is known as he. He who gets slapped. He now is a very popular clown in the circus. uh, And he uh, does all of these routines where he is like summoning the power of how funny it is to get slapped in the face uh, and just get slapped 60 times per show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're all like, got sl- slapped 60 times this time. That was, that was a good good show tonight, Paul. Uh, and it's e. it's such a popular show that they, the circus has kind of built their entire sort of image around. Like, he's 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 there's a neon sign of him getting slapped in the face. Yes. Uh- <laughs> so he's like the star attraction of this circus is a clown who gets slapped a bunch. He's a good clown. Yeah. And and Lon Chaney is really good in normal guy mode and in clown mode. Yeah. Uh he he plays a great clown. Uh but yeah, this guy literally becomes the Joker. Mm-hmm. He does the meme. <laughs> <laughs> um and then at the circus we're introduced to two of our other really central characters, uh Bizano and Consuelo. Who are the sort of, uh, you know, young, hot, romantic leads of this film? Mm-hmm. Um, Bezano is a uh, uh, a sort of horseback stunt rider, um, and Consuelo is is the daughter of uh, this sort of wealthy uh, the count. Ca- yes, the count, of course, because we had the Baron, and now we have the count. Our two villains. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and so Bezano and Consuelo kind of get thrown together as part of the circus act with the horse. Um, there's a funny bit where the horse is actually pushing Bezano into the room to like go talk to her. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, some of the intertitles in this are kind of they're a little a little maybe overwritten, but they're kind of fun. They describe the the count as uh, the flower of an old family gone to seed. And then Consuelo as an orchid in the ruined Mancini Gardens. Um, yeah, I was trying to understand what those really meant. <laughs> I, I, I got, I think I get the intent from them. It's like one is this, like you know, head of a wealthy family, but who is you know not a very good person, and the other is this sort of like this one bright spot in this sort of like ruinous old money family. Um. And we get a bunch of we get a bunch of circus stuff, um, you know, some some circus acts and things. Um, I yeah, I forgot to mention earlier actually one kind of like other interesting wrinkle about like him get his act of mm, getting slapped yeah. on stage is that he is um, he is pretending to present his scientific findings to the academy uh, an academy of clowns mm-hmm. they all laugh at him and as they laugh at him they slap him every time he tries to say something he gets slapped yeah 
Uh, and the, so it's this like degradation, like humiliation thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, the, it also, his act ends with, he has got this little plush heart that gets sewn into his, oh, yes. his costume. And at the end of the act, it is ripped out and then buried. Yeah. Stomped on the ground and yeah. then buried super super sad clown uh yeah uh and yeah great 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 stuff to men work with. men will literally become a clown and turn their worst experience into a circus <laughs> uh, show uh, uh, instead of going to therapy I, the circus is his therapy Glenn. it's true <laughs> um but but he hasn't healed that much because uh one day the baron comes to see a show mm. and uh after the show, and like uh, he notices yeah. the Baron, throws him uh, off his rhythm. And, yeah, <laughs> and uh, and eventually the Baron goes backstage, and he uh, the the he the Baron um, mm. uh, ends up kind of trying to uh, court Consuelo as a uh, as a as a lover of some kind. Um, Despite despite uh, uh, he's ex wife uh, being right. with him as well, indeed. Um. Uh. It is also around here, right? So that the the count has sort of talked to Consuelo that he has this rich friend who wants to marry Consuelo, who turns out to be the Baron. Um, right. We get uh, a reveal that the count has a sword cane which is going to come into, you know, it's going to be important later. Um, uh, Chekhov's sword cane. Exactly. Uh, Bizano, the uh, horse guy, um, and Consuelo go out for a, a lovely picnic in the garden and make flower crowns. <laughs> um, and uh, meanwhile, like, the Count is kind of trying to marry her off to the Baron. Like, you have money, my family doesn't really have money anymore. Let's let's make this work. I don't care what my daughter wants. Um, yeah. But so Consuelo is still like, she won't agree to marry Bizano because she's like, I need my father's, you know, approval, which is, you know, a bunch of bullshit. But Consuelo <laughs> is, is old fashioned. Um, And but yeah, there's a lot of this like development of the relationship between the two of them. Like mm-hmm. they they really seem it's like they are the couple. They are the ones yeah. who, um, you know, deserve the love or right. whatever. Right? But then also, meanwhile, Paul or he is also kind of falling for Consuelo because Consuelo is nice to him and will like talk to him backstage. She like sh- sews the heart into his his costume before the show. Um, and just kind of treats him like a human being. Honestly, like, uh, I was, when, when this reveal happened, that there was a triangle, and that he uh, uh, loved Consuelo too, mm. I was a little, like, disappointed in the movie. I got a little thought, worried like, about how yeah. it was going to play out, and then my worries were put aside, oh, because it yes. handles it very well, I think. So, he, he, he... Uh, admits to Consuelo that he loves her. Yeah. And then uh, and then she laughs at him. She immediately laughs it off like, oh, I thought you were serious. Like, she immediately thinks it's like part of his like sad sack persona. Like, 
Yeah. Of like, oh, I've, I've, I've loved you secretly <laughs> from, you know, from afar. And he's like, oh, right. oh, you, you know. Which is, it's, uh, it's true. But mm-hmm. then, like, it, it's true that he, he loves her. But then he is, he knows this situation, right? Mm-hmm. He, even though he has just, like, admitted that he loves her, uh, he's like, well, another embarrassment that I can reclaim, you yeah. know? And, and so he goes, yes, you're right. That was the joke all the time mm-hmm. that I, uh, I, I was just, I was just goofing around and I'm just playing a character, you know? Yeah. He kind uh, of uses that to fuel, like, f- uses that as fuel back into, like, the per- the persona that he's built. Yeah, and it's like this it's like this combination of just like like masochism and mm-hmm. uh and like reclaiming of like the things that hurt him and uh like a shield at the same time. Yeah. And, like there's there's so much that's going on with this character and I think like Lon Chaney does like a, a yeah. fantastic job. Of, he's also like, he's also taking the most painful thing he's ever lived through and he's turning it into art. Like he's, yeah, you know, um, uh, but so then Paul or he, uh, confronts the Baron and the Count about their sinister plans to, to marry Consuela to, to, uh, the Baron. Um, he's like, I'm not, I'm not losing another one to you, Baron. And they sort of have an altercation, and the Count uh, stabs him with his sword cane. But clever, clever Paul has left a trap, which is that he has left a lion cage open outside the door. Like, he put a lion cage, like, right up against the door and, like, opened the front of it. So then he's there, like, bleeding out from a stab wound. Um, And the... The count and the baron are like ha 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 we we stabbed this guy let's leave yeah and they open the and door dur- during this altercation by the way like like he reveals himself to be Paul to right the baron. yeah yeah uh, and he's like and so the baron is like oh god like this guy has got some kind of revenge going on yeah. right now <laughs> um so they they try to leave but they open the door and there's a lion there <laughs> um and so there's a great scene where they're. They're just like getting attacked, mauled, attacked yeah. and mauled by a lion. They don't show anything gruesome, but it's still like it's a real lion. Yeah. And there's this bit where they're like they're trying to like hide behind tables, and then it will show just the lion leaping over the table and like stuff getting like commotion happening. Um, and well, and so the lion eventually kills them, mm-hmm. uh, and and he is just left in the room, stabbed, and to, ready to be lion food. And he says the best line in the movie. The lion's coming up to him, and mm. he says, it's time for the final slap. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, God. That's this a movie, paraphrase. This, but like... <laughs> this is the movie that slaps. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. Um, but so then the lion tamer shows up and chases the lion away before the lion can slap him to death with its claws. Um, and, and, uh, Paul goes out to perform his, his act, right? His slap act. While dying. While bleeding out. Yeah. Which he does. And he, he finishes the act, but 
dies holding his bloody, his like plush heart that has been in his costume. So it's soaked through with blood. Um, oh man! And sort of, Bezano and Consuelo are finally free to you know be together because the machinations of the Count and the Baron are mute because they're they've both been killed by a lion. Um, and the movie ends with the the quote. Uh, what is death? What is life? What is love? <laughs> That's kind of silly. But, uh... It's still kind of silly, but I, uh, you know, it's it, it's I think in fitting with this the kind of operatic nature of this whole movie. Very operatic. Yeah, it's um, based on a, a Russian play. I'm not sure if it's an opera or just a. I think it's just a play. I don't think it's an actual opera, but um, mm-hmm. that that tracks to me. Like, yeah, this feels like a Russian play. It's very bleak. <laughs> We mentioned, uh, like, anti-heroes before, and I think Paul kind of fits into that more so than, like, McTeague. Like, McTeague is just a bastard. Um, Whereas Paul is, like, we do care about him and, like, what happens to him in the story, but he's also, like, a a crazy person. (laughs) And, like, he he doesn't really do good things, necessarily, like he he does he does empathy. murder via lion, which which rules, but is also you know not not the most morally upstanding act. Um, I don't know. I feel like when when you're in a movie, when you're watching a movie, when you're a character in a movie, like you have a little more leeway as far as like killing people. Sure, <laughs> yeah. Then, especially if it's by lion. Um, uh, but I feel like. Paul embodies that kind of archetype more so than most other characters that we've mm-hmm. come across. Um, yeah. He's a tragic, a tragic anti-hero. But he like, like, I don't know. Like, I feel like the thing, you know, I like how he is sort of like, thinks he's having this sort of romantic relationship with Consuelo. And it's like, no, like that's entirely one-sided. And she, it immediately dismisses it and he's just and like, he immediately like reclaims it you know as, right, as part yeah. of his thing uh and eventually like you know the the romantic subplot with him and consuelo is like completely dropped right because yeah. he has just internalized the masochism mm-hmm. and uh but but also you know he's like you're free to live your life now you yeah. know yeah uh he uh he well, is like not trying to like use his death to like get to her he's not, he's given up on trying to no. get to her i mean and he is i mean the main reason other than revenge he is trying to kill uh uh the baron and the count in order to like give her a a future sort of like they're the people that are preventing her from being happy. And so he's like, I'm just yeah. going to kill them with a lion and then you're good. He, he is getting his own revenge, but he's also living his life in service of other people. Mm-hmm. And yeah. like when his life gets ruined by the scientists, he decides to take his shame and like use it for the entertainment of other people. Mm. Yeah. Uh, he, he's like this, uh, you know, he's a true benefactor of, of all the people around him. Yeah, um, he's a good dude. Even if he killed some people with a lion, they sucked anyway. Yeah, sure. Um, there was a, a letterboxed review of this movie that described it as having a uh, threatening aura, which I, I very much agree with. I think that is a, a, an apt description of this movie. Because um, there is something that is like 
this movie isn't more violent or uh you know more gruesome than anything we've watched but it, it is like there's something about it that is very like yeah threatening <laughs> um <laughs> it it is like you said there, there are other movies that get into darker subject matter and have like darker things occurring on screen but i think this movie uh as just this yeah this this tone and this 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 vibe to it that is very like oh this is you know i'm not used to seeing seeing this yeah um got anything else on that um i don't know i guess it's like the way that it it it's not really satire but it's it's treating it seriously but there's a this kind of like almost kind of like sarcastic quality to a lot of at least with the the main character like the mm-hmm. way that he kind of laughs stuff off and is, you know, he's like, ah, the, the whole, tone of it's this all a big really joke. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Pretty, uh, it's a good film. It feels, it feels pretty daring for, for this, this year. Yeah. Uh, and despite the fact that like, I feel like a lot of these ideas have been kind of, uh, hijacked by chuds you know (laughs) if this if this movie came out now it would embolden the wrong kind of people (laughs) people who want to join the circus and and do murder i mean joining the circus go for it i'm just talking about like uh, more incels to join the circus is what you're saying uh yes actually (laughs) (laughs) hell they'll probably get laid in the circus right (laughs) are you I'm sure you know how circus people are. (laughs) I'm sure you're aware of how circus people are. Uh, Yeah, Uh, this this movie is like I think it's like so like thematically rich. Mm. I I uh, it's like very like narrow. It's like playing with these ideas, like this narrow set of ideas, but it is examining them through all of these like really interesting lenses. It's like putting them through different tests. I I think that like I, I haven't seen Joker. I haven't seen the the stupid Joker movie. Uh, um, spoilers: This movie is better. <laughs> right. Well, that's what I'm saying. Is it's like I feel like the the sense that I get from the Joaquin Phoenix Joker movie is that, or or just the Joker Batman story in general, is that it's playing with similar themes, but it's doing it in a less interesting way. Mm. Uh, I think this movie is awesome. Uh, I think yeah. it's really smart. I think it's one of the smartest movies that we've seen so far. Well, I think I think you said this before. It it asks a lot of the audience in in ways that not a lot of other movies, up, or that at least we've watched up to this point for the show have done. Yeah. Um, which I like. It makes it stick out for sure. Uh, speaking yeah. of lions, though, a little fun fun fact at the end here about this movie oh. is it is technically it is the first. Uh, appearance of the MGM Lion logo. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, Goldwyn Pictures already had a Lion logo. So, they already had this sort of like film strip Lion thing. But this was the first. It wasn't the first MGM film release, but it was the first film produced by the newly formed MGM studio. Mm-hmm. And so, it was the first one to have the the Lion with the actual MGM logo on it even if 
Goldwyn already had the lion logo. It just had a different name on it. Um, so that's just a fun uh, thing. Yeah, and this was um, this was one of the top grossing movies of the year too. Yeah, uh, which I think for like I don't know an art film. Uh, I don't know if at, for a a really challenging drama mm. that has like some really interesting tonal stuff going on like that's pretty impressive that this uh got such play you know yeah well i, I feel like big melodramas tended to play well in the 20s it seems like that was very in in style at the time fair enough i mean i, I think that this is like elevated beyond a lot of melodramas but mm. yeah. uh uh, and we can move on to uh, favorites of the year. Uh, I mean, I, I think I know like, what mine is. I think I know what yours is, too. I, uh, <laughs> I, when I first saw He Who Gets Slapped, and I want to watch it again, like, very soon. But mm. when I first saw it, I was like, okay, instant favorite. Like, this movie is so good. It's, like, really complex. It's, like, really interesting. Um, it's funny. It's, it's. It's awesome. Uh, I think that, and I, I love He Who Gets Slapped, but I think that Thief of Baghdad just has way too much going for it for me to not pick it. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I'm, I'm a little on the fence because I also really like Sherlock Jr. I think that movie is fantastic. Mm. But yeah, Thief of Baghdad, I was just like, I had a dumb grin on my face pretty much the entire time i was just so full of glee watching that movie i was just it's like yes i was like vibrating with enthusiasm watching it it's very up my alley too there's a lot of monster fights there's treasure hunts there's like magic and all this stuff um uh yeah it's great thiva Baghdad is the best the best of 1924 you heard it here first yeah uh, double double endorsed. Yeah. Uh, and so that'll do it for for this year. Uh, and uh, that that'll do it for this episode as well because we do one episode for every year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it is very late. We need to wrap this up. <laughs> so uh, if you're interested in following us online, uh, you can do that on Instagram and Twitter, uh, and. You can email us if you want. I don't know. Sure. Uh, yeah. One week, one year podcast at gmail.com, right? Spelled out. O-N-E. Yeah. Can't, it's not consistent anywhere. Anyway, let's wrap this up. Uh, thanks for thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, thanks for watching, everybody, on YouTube. And, Glenn, I will see you next year. See you next year. Exotic-type mammals. Everybody help me out. It's a world-class menagerie. Prince Ali has...